Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, High Tales of History's Tall Tales. Each week, two sisters get together, get high, and like to surprise each other with stories from history. It's a casual hangout. Welcome to our smoke circle. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to episode 10, everyone. Come on in, get settled. I'm so excited. 10, double digits. Yeah, this was the big one you were waiting for. Yeah. And then it'll be like 20 and then actually more like 50 will be the next one. I think once you get to 10, you can kind of be like, ah, if I can get to 10, I'm going to get to 50. Right. Yeah. I mean. If I can get to 10, I can get to 50. Massive jump. What is that? It's that awful light margarita I picked up and I hate it. It looks pink. Is it pink? It's white peach. I mean, the flavor of the peach is fine. The peach doesn't bother me. It's the Splenda taste because it's light. Oh, the yeah. The aftertaste that. Yeah, I don't like that either. I'm very disappointed with what's going on over here in my. Well, in you my can go mouth. downstairs and make yourself another drink if you want. No, I'll we're pause here it. now. Nope, we're here. We're okay. doing this. I'll just suffer through <laughs> in silence. All right. Well, I'm going to add to your suffering. Let's rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Here's our beat here. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh. Cut you. I did paper again. I I still sent it out, too. I sent You did, like the email, the AOL. (laughs) All right, scissors. You still use dial-up with that shit? Well, apparently. (laughs) No, AOL. AOL because it's old, so like dial-up? Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Dink, dink, dink. Oh, do I remember it? It just plays in my head sometimes whenever I just space you can't out. Sleep and that's all you hear is the dial-up sound. You're like, shit. It was so violent. It was so it, loud and oh. so violent. It was one of those things you got it and you were trying to turn the volume down and the volume wouldn't turn down and you were like, why? Scare the shit out of you. It did. <laughs> I would actually jump. You want to check your email? Yeah. Yeah. You have to wait 15 minutes. I'm going to yell at you the entire time. <laughs> And you're not going to have any emails because you're an idiot. No one loves you. Ah. And no IMs on your AOL. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, I won. Okay. And in light of everything, I think it's better that I go first because mine is really heavy. Okay. And sort of dark. Okay. So we are heading to Germany. Oh, yeah. So there it is. (laughs) We've had like illicit liquids episodes this is just our germany episode this is our germany episode (laughs) i'm gonna tell you about a group of avengers not the avengers not the revengers (laughs) but like the not to be dark but the holocaust version okay so for those of you who have seen inglorious bastards any tarantino fans out there um I think that story inspired that movie. This story inspired this that movie. Okay. Um, I didn't look super into it. This is the second time we've quoted Tarantino films. Oh, yeah. Because he did the last one with the Hattori. As I often try to do, I... Yep, I just went to space. How are you? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. 
<laughs> I just dialed up. That's what I was saying. Like whenever I space, when I space out, that's exactly like if someone like did one of those zoom into my pupils. Exactly. That would be what was happening. It would just be like that little box bouncing back and forth between two computers. Ding, ding, ding. And you're just looking at me, and I'm like, oh shit, she wants something from me. Wait, was I talking? Wait, what was I talking about? Little people in your head, like inside out, are like, she's staring at me. Quick, what'd she say? I don't know. <laughs> okay. why, why are you looking at me like that <laughs> what woman what signal again <laughs> signal. fair warning to all listeners there's a quite a bit of dark content coming up in this story so if you find that extremely upsetting which you probably do i know i did uh and it's really going to bother you i will not be offended if you skip past this story uh it's a cool story but it's a very dark one um and I Mine's will uplifting if that helps anybody. There you go. Laurel's is very uplifting so and I happy, guess that worked out nicely. Okay. Um, which is fantastic. But mine, there will be parts, and I'll warn you, where we get into the nitty gritties of some Holocaust uh, info because okay. I think it's important to set the scene and give you an idea of what's going on. So, and this is about a group of Avengers who will be avenging some war crimes. So, that's my PSA to you all. Appreciated. Okay, so you, however, don't get to miss out on this and get to hear every horrible detail. No, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to hear it. So with that happy thought, in September of 2016, Holocaust survivor Joseph Harmatz, I believe, passed away. Harmatz was one of the last few remaining Jewish Avengers of World War II. I believe it was like September 26th or something that he passed away, but... You know, we're just got him for September here. So. Yeah, it's coming up soon. Yeah. yeah. I, like, stared at you, and I was like, it is September. I was like, nope, she's talking about the day. She's talking about the day. Yeah. Carry on. Just agree. Just agree. Nod your head. Okay. I am not high, but I'm starting to think I got contact high. From I think you did, too. Because you're, like, I was going to say, why does she feel, why does it like, feel like she's, really, like, with me like, right now? <laughs> I'm not with you. I'm in a totally other place right now. I think you did, because I realized how much it actually smells like Weed oh in here. yeah i'm like definitely contact high right now i'm just running my hands through dave mustaine's beautiful gorgeous locks have you been contact high before have i been to a concert uh yeah <laughs> people literally bust out giant foil bowls and just light the fuck up in the pit and i'm like hell yeah man wow trying to stay on track here how much did you smoke tonight because you definitely hit me i mean i've got two edibles and then several smokes as well too several smokes and so does Katie. it's a lot basically a lot that's happened yeah yeah i'm gonna be in and out this whole episode i apologize to the audience and to you <laughs> harmatz was born in lithuania and lost most of his family in the holocaust um i believe they were in like the uh they were hiding at several like safe, safe houses house? okay. safe houses and they eventually moved into like a Jewish ghetto mm -hmm. and he joined this whole like, we're going to rebel thing. And his mom said, don't get your younger brother involved. At least leave me one son. Aww. I know it was pretty dark. Uh, and then they were all pulled off to concentration camps and he saw none of them ever again. <sighs> so it doesn't get any better. So unfortunately, not to just because I don't want you all to get your hopes up. I want you to settle in and get ready for the... Uh, doom that i'm gonna bring to you okay um okay here's where it gets extremely heavy and we go into holocaust details so if you don't like this skip ahead skip a good ahead minute a bit. yeah okay. skip ahead a good minute and a half 
Okay. The Holocaust is considered one of the greatest crimes in human history, and to this day, no one was really punished for it. There were some, of course, at the top of the Nazi state uh, who were called to account during the Nuremberg trials, which accounts for only 24 individuals. Excuse me, it takes more than 24 people to kill 6 million. What of the people responsible for operating and policing the, de the death camps, the gas chambers, who administered the pellets of lethal Zyklon B, who manned the ghettos and drove the trains, who used rifle butts to herd batch after batch of Jews to vast pits, stripped them naked and shot them, leaving plenty to be buried alive. Who would bring those men to justice? And like, I didn't realize this, but they went into detail about that they only used one bullet for each person. So if they didn't die by that bullet, you were just like, mm -hmm. like I said, like, alive and left and I like they went into like a greater description of like what people would see days after and it was really scarring and I was like mm -hmm. holy shit yeah so I left that out sort of yeah. um so by 1949 four years after the war only 300 Nazis were in prison from a list of 13 million oh yeah I mean Granted, I understand, like, because there were some who did it just to survive, but then there were some people who were definitely responsible for being a part of the whole machine. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, watching all of this was a motley group of survivors from ghettos and camps, Jews who had somehow cheated death. Most had lost their families, and all had witnessed unimaginable horrors. The retelling of these events has been recounted in several books, including Rich Cohen's The Avengers... Forged in Fury by BBC's former Jerusalem correspondent, Michael Elkins, and Joseph Hermat's memoir, From the Wings. Known as, and I might say this wrong, um, Nakam, Nakam, meaning in Hebrew, vengeance or avenger. Oh. Um, we'll just call them the Avengers because in English, essentially, that's what they were going for. Sure, okay. Uh, the group set about implementing death sentences they themselves had passed. Hermats says that the message echoed into a rallying cry for the newborn state of Israel. The days when the attacks on Jews went unanswered were over. Posing as allied military police, serving post-war occupation authorities, they would identify Nazis who had been melted back into civilian life, staging arrests and spiriting them away. Some of these ex-SS men would end up strangled, others hanged, almost all passing off as suicides. The Avengers forced the offender to stand... Oh, PSA, everyone. Oh. Uh, this is going to be a little rough. They kind of describe how some of these people die, so... It's a warning. Minute. Uh, the, uh, the Nazis that they're attacking? Yeah. They're I mean, it doesn't now? get okay. super brutal, but I mean, it, you know, describes okay. them killing them. So, probably fast forward a couple clicks then if you uh, want to hear it. Probably about uh, 45 seconds to a minute. Okay. The Avengers forced the offender to stand on the roof of a car and then drove the car away, leaving them swinging in their own garage. So it would look like suicide. It was fashioned to look non-suspicious. Mm -hmm. uh, High-level Nazis were found dead on roadside ditches, cut down by hit-and-run drivers. Oh, yeah, they didn't fuck around. One senior Gestapo was awaiting a minor operation and somehow ended up with kerosene in his bloodstream. Oh, shit. shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So not all the members were Holocaust survivors, however. Some came from Britain. It was like a... It, uh, they used a special word for it. It was like a British Jews. 
essentially. But they use like a fancy terminology for it. And I was like, well, I think this means the same thing. Okay. So they were from Britain. Okay. And what is now present-day Palestine, and even some were from South Africa. Weirdly, they named all these places that like, I don't know, apparently they had ties there. With access to military intelligence and the right to travel freely across post-war Europe, the Jewish people were given free, like they were able to move wherever they wanted to mm-hmm. kind of thing. Free, like free access or free travel? Yeah, access. pretty okay. much. Uh, they were extremely efficient in the tracking down and conducting extra du- judicial executions. Man. Um, okay. If little is known about them, it's because the brigades were impeccably discreet. They kept their mouths shut and took their secrets to the grave. Wow. Okay. It's, yeah. So it got like, I was like, when I got to that part and like, I'll end on the, because obviously Harmatz had passed away mm-hmm. in 2016. That's where the story starts. Um, it gets really heavy. And I was like, holy shit. But yeah. I mean, but also, like, that's why I left in, like, the Holocaust war crimes, because, like, I was like, well, you have to imagine what these people lived through. Yeah. Like, there was certain things that drove them to this point. So I wanted people to, you know, really get the feel of the entire situation. Mm -hmm. The horrors of it. Forged in Fury makes clear that the effort endured long after the immediate aftermath of the war, stretching into at least the 50s. Even escaping internationally could not keep the XSS safe. Nakam, or the Avengers, even tracked down Alexander Locke, L-A-A-K, I believe, Locke, uh, to suburban Winnipeg, Canada. There's our Canada for the episode. Woo! <laughs> what up, Canada? Canada, there again. I will slip four, him in wherever I can. Four, four weeks running. He was wow. responsible for the deaths of 100,000 Jews. Oh. At the Estonian concentration camp of Yagala, I believe. J-A-G-A-L-A. And A has an umlaut over it, which is the two dots in German. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know yeah, that one. Yeah, I do. Impressive. Yeah. So I believe it's Yagala. They waited for Locke's wife to leave to, on a cinema trip and confronted him with his crimes and their intended punishment. In the end, he agreed, and they let him take his own life with a rope. So... The Avengers did not confine themselves to individual executions, however. Their largest operation was Stalag 13, a detention center for former SS men in Nuremberg. The Avengers, this one isn't super bad, so you don't need to skip ahead. Um, The Avengers found out where the bread was being made for the prison. They managed to infiltrate the bakery and poison one of the morning's batch of breads with arsenic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this they, is a big move. Okay. I mean, they did. They yeah. it succeeded. And a New York Times uh, article from April of 1946 says 1900 German prisoner of wars fell ill. Now, they did not release like a death number because they didn't. You know how sometimes they keep stuff under wraps on purpose? Yeah. It was one of those situations. It was never clear how many SS men died. Some say several hundred, others say at least a thousand. So it's extremely varying reports. Wow. I believe in 1991 they released reports of like exactly what went down. So their biggest plot was one to poison the water supply to five German cities. You ready? Oh yeah, it got oh, fucking real. Okay. Uh, Munich, Berlin, Weimar, um, or Weimar. There it is. Woo, stoner. <laughs> Nuremberg. And Hamburg. Ultimately, the only reason the plan did not succeed was because Kovner, 
who was holding the canisters of poison to send to these cities, was arrested by British military police en route with the poison. So somebody sold them out. Uh, they believe they were betrayed because the fear of the massive slaughter, because they would hit a lot of innocent people as well. Yeah, well, that's what I was just thinking. I was like, oh, yeah, you poisoned no, an entire no, water they supply? They were for... very radical. That's okay. why I like, kind of warned everyone at the beginning. Like They were out for blood. The fear of that the massive slaughter would fatally undermine the Jewish sympathy at the time. Which it probably would. Yeah. But. Wow. Oh kind of scary to think that they almost got, a, they would have gotten away with it too. It was, that yeah. was their plan A. The poisoning of the bread was plan B. That's why they think that one was received better because it targeted specifically Nazis. Oh, okay. And okay. not yeah. just these innocent people who yeah. were just living there. Yeah. Mm, kind of crazy, but that's what happened. Okay. So, um, but Thanks they were sold out. So. Wow. So was he? Like, did he have them like in hand and was like? He had them in his just backpack. Dump like he was just about to put them in. He was like about to dump. Well, it in they the water had supply. blueprints to each of these cities, and they had people infiltrated into the water main works. So they were just gonna drop their doses to people, and they were gonna toss it like Batman Begins style straight uh-huh, into the water yep, source and yep. just hit everyone. Okay. Okay, that's how I imagined it. That's yeah. mm-hmm. scary. Okay. Very wow. scary. But their other one was successful. And the loaves of bread, but those were XSS, so it's kind of more targeted towards the people that really whose fault it is. So yeah. Um, so after the war, Harmatz emigrated to Israel, where he worked as a Jewish edu- at a Jewish educational organization. Uh, and this is the interviewer speaking with Harmatz. He says the group sent out on a simple mission: kill Germans. Harmatz said flatly. How many? He asked. As many as possible. He quickly responded. Oh. Yeah. So fucking right in there with his responses. Oh, yeah. Uh, He says he doesn't regret anything. They needed proper revenge, he said. Normal people had to do something to make sure that nothing like the Holocaust ever happened again. That's where my story ends. So I hope yours is a little more (laughs) uplifting. I thought, I mean, it's cool. Like, I'm with it. It's not quite Inglorious Bastard style because, I mean, they went balls out. Man. So. I have the dark story this week, so it's your turn. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to dig us out of here. I'm going to dig us out through a tunnel. Say that again. You said with a towel? With a tunnel. Please tell me it is a secret tunnel. It is a secret tunnel. (laughs) It is a very secret tunnel. Okay. So, Katie, I too... I'm going to be in the country of Germany tonight. Deutschland. And it's yeah. going to take us some time just a little bit, but our story does kind of start right where yours ends, basically. Leaves so off. Kinda, Hell yeah. Yeah, we kind of pass the baton in the, in the century here to each other. Everybody, we're going to go on an adventure and in a daring escape under the Berlin Wall in the 60s. We're going to discuss the Berlin Wall escape known as Tunnel 29. I love this story. And if you follow our social media, which you should, because it's our way that we can hang out during the week, you may have noticed a post about this on Tuesday, September 14th, because that was the day in history that the escape happened. But before we go back 59 years ago to that date, we have to go back a little further to the end of World War II. When Germany was defeated, the Allied powers couldn't decide who would run the country. So they divided the country into four sectors. 
three allied powers, the Americans, the British, the French, and then Soviets. And the Soviets had the entire eastern section of uh, Germany, or half, I should say. The western half was divided into those three sectors. So that's how everything got split up. Being that Berlin was the ever-important capital, even though it was 100 miles inside the Soviet sector, they decided to all play nice, and they divided up the city in that same sort of way. So the western Berlin was in three sectors for the controlled by the Allies, and then East Berlin was controlled by the Soviets. Unfortunately, since the Allied forces hadn't made it into the city yet, so this is at the very last few you know months of the, of the war, Germany's defeated. Russia's trying to get to Berlin, and the Allied the rest of the Allied forces are a little bit further behind. But everyone's trying to like get to Berlin. And since the the rest of the Allied forces hadn't made it into Berlin yet, Stalin's forces did what they wanted to with Berlin. They were looting museums, stealing money and gold from the banks. Millions of books were taken out of the libraries and shipped back. Factories were stripped of machinery, brass, copper, all of it sent back to Moscow. Uh, uranium and any sort of bomb building technology was taken back to Russia as well so they could create their very first atomic bomb. Oh, shit. Yeah. So that was the plan. Russia, get to Berlin as fast as you can so we can like just strip everything that they can that they can use in their own country. And also along with this, Stalin makes this huge power play to take over all of Berlin in 1948 by setting, setting up a land and sea blockade to West Berlin, which, which effectively left the people starving and without supplies. They were cut off from the rest of the country and the city. And although that in itself could be like its own story, I don't want to get too far mm-hmm. into that. I just... Um, Setting the scene. Sets the scene because this is really where like the Cold War starts, mm-hmm. yep. as with these little power grabs at the very end of World War II mm-hmm. from from Russia and the United States as well to kind of like pity back and forth with this. Mm-hmm. So it really sets the scene because during that blockade, uh, allied forces around the clock were having to drop in supplies for 15 months that. straight. Yeah. yeah, the airlift, the in allied German airlift. German class, I think we watched a movie about it. I don't remember what Constantly it was Constantly airplane taking off and landing and it was just around the they clock. They parachuted them in. Mm-hmm. Whoop, yep. Whoop. Yeah. That was going on for 15 months until 1949. And that's September of 1949. We couldn't have planned this any better. I know. It's Can just we so just good. appreciate that for a second? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, we actually don't talk beforehand about this. Yeah. But there was, I had a moment of panic and I said, what time frame are you in? And you said Germany in 1960s and I freaked out. I was like, shit. <laughs> so I had to tell you, I was like, well, this is what I'm doing. You go, oh no, I'm doing something totally different. I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, because we never want to, we got to just make sure that we're, we're not, not doing, doing the exact same, same story. story. <laughs> like, oh, shit. Um, Most of the time it's completely different. So like we just kind of go like, what kind of time frame are you? Or like, what part of the world are you in? Or whatever. That's what so, we usually say. Yeah. We could say, hey, where are you visiting this week? Yeah. You know? Where are you taking us? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we'll say like 1960s Germany or 1950s Germany in my case. But yeah. like when we got here tonight, I, I was like, wow, that was kind of what a twist of fate that was because <laughs> it was just kind of wild. I guess it's not as wild because we try and hook up our months to correspond with some historical events, but it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. I've got some shit for October, though. Woo! Oh, I'm so excited we'll talk about it later. When, okay. Yeah. All right. Starting in 1949, for many years, one could cross the border as they pleased, just back and forth between East and West Berlin. But 
Unfortunately, over the years, East Germany, or the German Democratic Republic, as it was officially known, began to notice the exodus of people out of their borders. People were leaving and not coming back. What is happening? By 1960, nearly one-fifth of their population had left for the West. They were fed up with the communist dictatorship, all the Soviet tanks kind of tooling around and bullying them, the censorship, poor living conditions, like the economy. I, was gonna say, like I remember all of it was it. not good for them. Yeah. Like they were hungry. Oh, they out of here. They yeah. were cold. They were treated like crap. They were stopped and frisked in the streets and shit. Like it was not good. Yeah. No, it was not a nice place to live. They were treated like prisoners. Mm hmm. And so they're like, right, we're getting out of here. And GTFO. <laughs> GTFO for sure. Because it also led to. Uh, a brain drain, as it's called, like when everybody kind of, when all the smarty McSmarty pants leave a place, which also cripples the economy as well, too, because their education system, their healthcare, science, their overall economics, everything gets impacted by the, the brain drain because all the scientists, doctors, teachers, they get out of Dodge for a better life. They're like, nope, see ya, we're out of here. So right. there could be an entire village or a town that didn't have a doctor or a teacher in it. Uh -oh. Which is more detrimental than people realize. Yes, well, exactly, because they're watching the economy start to, like, tank and communism is looking bad. And they're like, well, that is our problem. How can we convince people that communism is the best system if people are leaving by the bucket loads? So now, fast forward to 1961, and we're going to begin our story. Dark-haired and green-eyed, early 20-something I like how you move your microphone closer, like, yes, dark hair. I, well, I did. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, hello. Yeah, he's a handsome chap. In fact, you, if you pull up the social media, you can actually see who oh, wow. I'm about to introduce. This is kind of like our main character, uh, Berliner Joachim Rudolph. And he, are you seeing him? Are you looking at him right oh, now? Hold on. I got Come on. on Megadeth's page. Hold on. That was the last thing I looked up. Give okay, me a break. so he's hanging out at the beach with his childhood friends. They're having this fantastic end of summer beach party, this little summer vacation, right? Handsome chap. Oh, yeah. They are sunbathing by day, you know, hanging out on the beach and then drinking and dancing by night. It's a blast. They're having a wonderful time. They wake up, however, on the morning of August 13th to hear announcements over the loudspeakers saying that the border of East Germany is now closed. Oh, shit. Now, of course, there's some confusion because they're like, well, how do you divide a city in half? How does that even work? You yeah, know, exactly. Uh, the east and west are connected in all kinds of ways. The electricity, the sewer, telephone lines. You can't just like close it all. That doesn't right. make sense. It's a city. It's, it's interconnected already. And they kind of brush it off a little bit because it's just such a maddening idea that that could even happen, that they're like, that must be an exaggeration. That can't be, really be real. And then they start hearing rumors amongst the campsite about like fences and barbed wire and like border patrol and VOPO, which is like the military police. And they're like, oh, things are a lot more serious than we realized. We got to get back home. So they drive all the hours back to get to Berlin and they drive up to the border and they realize that, yes, there is a wall. It's not exactly a wall wall as we think of the Berlin Wall, like concrete and barbed wire and the graffiti and everything. It was more of a tall fence with barbed wire on the top. And they were in the process of building the actual right. cement wall that they put the, you know, that fence up so quick. 
they also see that the Border Patrol now have guns. Now, they've pulled up to the border and they, they park the car and they start to get out. But as they do, the Border Patrol officers start warning and threatening them with the guns. And the young men realize that it's actually the VOPO, the military police. Yeah. Which, it's called the People's Police, but it was like a trained, it was military trained mm-hmm. police force. So um, so they were a little bit more scary. essentially like our National Guard. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So the young men, they leave without harm. They, they're like, oh, shit. All right, let's get back in the car. Let's go. But all the talk on the way home, and as well as when they got home that night, it was like, there's a wall now. Are you going to escape? Right. They came to find out that the entire Berlin Wall was erected overnight. As late as June of 1961, the East German government was saying that it had no intention to build a wall. They're like, no, we have no intention to do that. It's the first thing from our minds. And then suddenly, How interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly, on some point on August 12th, they make an announcement saying that they're going to close the border. And literally that night, overnight, from the 12th to the 13th, they have... Um, they threw up the fence with barbed wire? They put it up overnight, yeah. This is like some Disney shit. It, when the Halloween ends and it becomes Christmas the next <laughs> morning, like, bam, overnight. Uh-huh. They Disneyed that. They Disneyed it. Ooh. Now, I didn't realize that was how it was built. I went in a whole, like, dive on even how things I'm pretty sure that movie, too. whatever that movie was that we watched in German class, actually went into that, if I remember correctly. Because mm. it was a family that wasn't supposed to be over there, and they got stuck. And then yes. they had to hide in somebody's attic or something. Yeah. It was crazy weird. It, crazy shit was going on. I barely remember it, and I'm also stoned as hell right now. So yeah. my memory's even worse than it already is. <laughs> <laughs> this this fence was put up like instantaneously it seems like you know overnight and then the wall was built in like that you know that big mm-hmm. giant concrete wall it was kind of like added to over over time but it wasn't like this wall was built just a little bit and then like people could just jump over for weeks to go no. until mm-hmm. it got built up so anyway no, it was protected with men with assault rifles and yes. probably police dogs yes and they were ready to take you out if you got too close yep Mm-hmm. Indeed. So it's put up overnight by 10,000 soldiers. They put up these these tall fences with barbed wire. And because the wall has to forder, follow, sorry, because the wall has to follow the border exactly, mm-hmm. there'd be these stretches where like it goes straight and then like zig and zag and hit like mm-hmm. these weird corners. So like it's actually in the, the social media photos too. Like you'll, you'll see how that black line runs through Berlin yeah. And it kind of like hits an angle and it like, mm-hmm. so, and, but it also, so it follows the border exactly and it also doesn't stop for anything. So trees torn down, goes through a park, goes through a park. If it goes through a house, the west part of the house or any west facing doors or windows were boarded and blocked out and Jesus. like bricked up. And then if it was a house, you were evicted. So people were just like suddenly instantaneously homeless. Or they had like a quarter of their house or a half of their house. Or if it was an apartment building, the all the windows that faced west and then like the doors, if they were in the west, they were blocked out. Jesus. And then like they could only get into the apartment building through the courtyard, which was east facing. So this wall like literally went through everything. Yep. One of these places that gets cut right in the middle is the famous and historic Bernauerstrasse. 
which ran between two districts of the city, but also right on that east-west border. So one side of the street would be East Berlin, literally like your neighbors across the street who you go out and get your bottles of milk off your front porch and go, mm-hmm. hey, Jim, like that, that per- that neighbor that you wave to like that, yeah. you do at 5.03 a.m. Jim, over there, hey, how about that game last night? You can't do that because now there's a wall mm-hmm. right down the street. Yep. So the next morning, people are waking up on our side of the wall. Mm-hmm. So families got separated, spouses got separated, mm-hmm. parents and children got separated from each other. Really sad. There's even a, um, I read a story about a newborn that was separated from her, uh, or from his parents, because Wonderful. hospitals in the West, or in West Berlin, were a little bit more advanced with their doctors and um, facilities. Mm-hmm. So if a baby was born with a more serious condition or needed um, some more intensive like surgery and care, a lot of times parents would try and get their baby over in a hospital in the West mm-hmm. to get taken care of. And that was what happened. This baby was in the hospital getting treatment and the parents lived in East Germany, or sorry, East Berlin. Mm-hmm. And they woke up and they were on the other side of the fence from their baby and they didn't see their baby for five years. Oh yeah. Horrible. So scary. So... They're stuck. You're stuck on one side or the other. This is a strict shit stretch of history for Germany here. In the <laughs> so the, sorry, the 30s, <laughs> 20s and 30s, all the way around, what, to the 80s? I mean, they had a rough patch. Yeah. They've won a few World Cups since then, so times are looking up, but damn. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just amazing. It was just really amazing to me how quickly this was done. Just mm-hmm. boom, instantaneously overnight, people woke up and bam, there's a, a fence there. So now, back to the question... Are you going to escape? For our main character, Joachim, he wasn't as sure as the rest of his friends were about escaping. After all, all of his life is in East Berlin, his family, his friends, his school. And he also learned from a very young age that escapes are risky and can sometimes come with a high price. You see, when Joachim was six, the Second World War was ending and Soviet soldiers were approaching rapidly from the east on their march to Berlin. So that little scenario I talked about in the beginning that Stalin was trying to like rush his soldiers mm-hmm. into the city, this is where where we are. So we're back here again. Joachim wakes one day to find his parents and his grandmother hastily packing their horse and cart with belongings. And his father drives the cart while he, his mother, grandmother, and baby sister hide under a blanket in the cart in the, in the back. Now, he understands they're escaping, but, you know, how do you... Comprehend. (laughs) Yeah, well, how do you, like, explain to a six-year-old that the Red Army is coming and they are bringing hell and horror with them? You can't. I mean, you can't. Honestly, you tell them that there's (laughs) bad guys and that we have to be... We're going to play a game or we have to be really quiet. Yeah. As they escape during the freezing cold winter, no less, they're trying to escape from their little country home and make it into Berlin. They're also heading there with millions of other people who are trying to also get to Berlin as quickly as possible. And after a while of traveling towards the city, they can see some German sh- soldiers and they can see the green coats and they're like, oh, okay, we're, get- we're, you know, we're about a day away. There's some German sh- soldiers here. They can protect us. All of a sudden, gunfire rings out. 
and Joachim's grandmother gets shot in the foot, and soon all the German soldiers are dead. And then here comes the Red Army. Oh, my God. The dread, right? Now, this is going to be the only bummer part of our story. And I'm going to kind of hit the skip button my, on, on, the, <laughs> on it as well, too. Mm. But just to paint the picture a little bit here. The Red Army come in. Some soldiers come in. And they drag um, Joachim's family into a nearby house where the Rus- Russian soldiers proceed to get really drunk, drink a lot of vodka. And now I'm going to hit pause for a second. We're going to hit that, that skip button. But basically... Although the Russian government and also war veterans say that this this did not happen, there are so many accounts from survivors that it it's kind of one that I, I want to say it's like common knowledge, but it's one of those things I've heard several times to the point mm. where I'm like, oh, I that's just something I understand about this event. Yeah, that that kind of level um, that when the Rus- Russian soldiers were coming and they were doing horrific things to women mm-hmm. of all ages and to the point where the stories that were coming out of it were so horrific that um, women were taking their own lives or oh my god yeah if, if they knew that the red army was in town they were killing themselves before the soldiers got to them or they would take their own lives afterwards as a result of the trauma Wow. Yeah. It kind of sounds like Viking bad is what I'm guessing. Yeah. Because the Vikings was... were not gentle to women. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, yeah. Okay. So it's probably along the same lines. Yeah. Wow. Shit. So I'm just saying these are the stories that, oh, no, that, that we're coming I, here with 100% this. I 100% believe they're true. Invading armies do it all the time. Yeah. Well, not I'm just... that I approve of it, but yes. Yeah. So again, like not to go into any sort of further detail, but that was, was kind bad. of, those were the stories that were coming to his father, which is why his father's like, we got to get out of here. Yeah. So. Shit, and here with they that are said, on the horizon. Yeah. With that said, in the morning, um, Joachim was just kind of cuddling with his dad and sitting in his lap, and they were, like, just holding each other. And in the morning, the Russian soldiers pack up, and they leave, and they take his dad with. He never sees his dad again. Turns out he died um, a few weeks later at a uh, Soviet prisoner camp. Mm. Well, that took the wind out of my sails. Yeah. But it gets uplifting from here. So, Joachim in interviews, he just said, just things happen in the house I don't want to talk about. But I'm just saying these are the stories that, you know, when when his father was trying to escape the Soviet forces, that That was exactly why. why. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. And although none of this is something a child should experience at six years old he grew up a lot that day Mm. and he he did and it made him realize at such a young age that he was physically very strong and capable like he could then like help his mom move back because because then like a second wave of russian soldiers were gonna gonna be coming through and they're like we got to get back home yeah and then he was also really clever at finding solutions for problems too so those things just kind of served him very well as a child growing up in east berlin so now, back to 1961, and uh, Joachim was uh, not up for another escape that could end horribly for himself and those he loves. So Joachim goes back to school. He's an engineering student, so he's very smart. And 
as a student, he and others would often turn their radio antennas to the west so that they would, that way they could get uncensored news and could hear what was really going on in the world and in Berlin. Uh, okay. And it was a common thing that quite a few of the students would do. But mm-hmm. then one day, there was a... The, like, the university had published the names of all of the students that were doing this and publicly calling How them out. How do they know? How do they know? That was exactly the thing. So that was when Joachim decided, no, nah, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't want to live in this new world, quote unquote, this future world where everything's censored. I can't say what I want, you know, listen to what I want, that kind of thing. So he's like, I'm going to escape. So remember that since... It first went up, the actual concrete wall has been getting stacked higher and higher, and then it gets, at its height, it gets topped with barbed wire. And within a few weeks, hundreds of people had managed to escape. Some swam across the river, uh, some somehow managed to like not cut themselves ribbons, just jumping over the, the fence. They threw clothing over it. That's oh, the okay. only way. You can throw okay. that carpeting over it. Oh, not that, that makes, I've ever done such a thing. <laughs> that makes so much more sense. For whatever reason, I was thinking they were just like jumping over. I was like, wow, how well, do you? That's so like super. Well, basically, I mean, if you ever have to get over barbed wire, people, the best way to do it is to find a really thick piece of clothing, throw it over and crawl on that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Well, then they were just hopping on over. Or third option was that because the wall was so close to all these houses and all these buildings, sometimes through them, you could go into buildings that were right at the wall and essentially throw yourself out of a higher story into the West. And there were firemen and people on the other side to try and catch you. There's even a picture. Holy shit. Right. There's it's even... like a crazy trip to Narnia. You're like, freedom! Yeah, people were jumping out of these windows to be like, okay, catch me. Come on. Um, you hope. Yeah. Well, I mean, there were people there. They weren't just like jumping out being like, into freedom. Yeah. Know, like, and then onto pavement. No, it was people there to, to try and catch or whatever. But So there's even a picture of a woman. She's in her 70s. And she's trying to get out of this window. There's people on the west on, on the ground trying to pull her out and like get her away. Meanwhile, there are Stasi secret police that are in the window in Vopo that are trying to like pull her back in and take her to prison. And so they're, they're literally east and west fighting over this, this woman. So there are a lot of pictures that come out of some of these escapes of, um, well, particularly taken from the western side of all these escapes that were happening and being like what see how much people she made it but i guess i mean i'm assuming i hope but, well she's literally on the ground so like they were holding her arms and there's like 10 people on the ground pulling her but it's the fact that the picture was taken yeah mid struggle is pretty amazing so it's good propaganda for the west for sure to say like look at what's happening here like a lot of people are trying to leave as fast as they can from the east so now after a few weeks of this happening the border patrol really decide to crack down. So now they have the barbed wire, they have dogs, they have guns, and they are instructed to, well, they had guns before, but um, they're instructed now to shoot anyone that's trying to leave. And so by next month in October, when our one of our main protagonists here, uh, Joachim decides to leave, now everything looks different. You know, it, it's, there's much more risk involved with trying to escape. And over time, what's known as the death strip is established, between, like by the wall. It's like this, this section between walls where um, 
the Isn't border. Is it a no man's land? It kind of, yeah. yeah. Well, I it was like an I East German's land, it. but it was yeah. that sort of idea, I guess, in the sense that there were border patrol, there were guards, or sorry, uh, guard dogs. There are watchtowers. There's barbed wire. There are trip wires and landmines, even and anti-tank weapons. I guess so over time, like everything, just mm-hmm. the security just gets heavier and heavier mm-hmm. and more dangerous as well, too. Joachim and his friend wanted to escape, even though now a month later everything is even harder, you know, and it's and it, and getting progressively harder as well, too. But they are looking for places on the wall that are maybe slightly weaker. less secure yeah. yeah, or weaker. They might be able to have an easier escape point. And within the city, everything's looking pretty secure. So they're like, oh, keep moving. And they end up riding out into the countryside. And there's a point where the border is kind of at the bottom of like a little hill. And there's a little bit weaker security. There's woods there. There's a little river on the other side. So there's just a little bit more place uh, like places to hide. However, the problem is that there is a watchtower there at the bottom of the hill right before the border. But they're like, this is our best place to get out. A week later, they're leaving the pub one night and the weather starts to darken. Some clouds are rolling in, kind of covering up the moon. It's it's clouding up the night. And they're like, this is the night. we got to go do this. So they go straight home and they pack. They can only take like a little bag. You know, you can't like... <laughs> carry all your belongings so it's like what are you going to need in the west he's got his winter coat and um you know degrees and certificates identification things that he you know passport all those things that you're going to need but otherwise it's pretty much the clothes on your back and those things and go and he does not tell his mom or his sister where he's going which is really tough for him as well too but he's got to do everything in secret so they get to the field. It's cloudy outside. They get down low. They're doing like little army crawls um, as the other person is taking turns watching the watchtower to like make sure, you know, as the light comes over or as guards turn around, you know, okay, lay low, hold still, that kind of thing. So they're taking turns back and forth doing this and they're getting to the bottom of the hill. They're getting towards like the forest and the river. And all of a sudden a huge flock of geese come up. This is nighttime, by the way, as well, you know, just to reiterate that. And so a huge flock of geese fly up. It's so loud. But at that point, they're like, we've committed. We can't turn back. And they're just worried that the guards were alerted to, like, did the geese just fly up for no reason? Or is there something down there that startled them? And so they're like, just go, 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 go. So they stay low, but they're moving quick now. They're getting through the river, and they're just trying to get as far and as fast as they can. They get through the river, they get to the other side, they follow a path, and the path leads them up to like a little, just a little like watch station. There's a couple soldiers there. It's not like really like a barracks or anything like that, but just like a little... It's more like a break room. Yeah, like yeah, mm-hmm, like a little break area. And there's a guard there who's got his eyes closed and his hands like kind of propped up on his chin. And they come up to him and they're like, we don't know where we're at. We don't know if we've got ourselves turned around and we're still in the east or if we've passed the border. And this soldier opens his eyes and is like, hey, what you guys doing in the middle of the night here? And at this point, it's like 4 or 5 a.m. Yeah. And they're like, uh. <laughs> and he goes. Sightseeing? Yeah. And he goes, it's okay. I know who, I, I, basically, like, I know who you are. Like, I know why you're here kind of thing. But you made it. Congratulations. You're safe now kind of thing. And they're like, oh, thank God. Because so many people were trying to escape that, like, yeah. you know, and so the guard was like, yeah. 
It's okay. You really You're were safe. On the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they made it. They oh, made it to the uh, the west. So butterflies. Hold on, I have to drink that one down. <laughs> they take Joachim to a CIA safe house, and he's questioned for hours by the CIA, like what's really going on over the wall, because there's no. There's no radio. There's no. T- there's no information nothing. that's coming out of East uh, East Berlin that's not already tampered with and censored. You know, so what little they are hearing is all propaganda and mm-hmm. you know communist radio, and so they're trying to figure out what's really happening over there, and you know also making sure that he's not a spy as well too, mm-hmm. and you know uh, yeah, just asking absolutely. all these questions, and finally after several hours they let him sleep and he sleeps and staying at the, the safe house for a few days while he kind of gets settled in. So there we go. He's questioned by the CIA. Now, meanwhile, same day, there's a hairdresser, 21-year-old hairdresser named Siegfried Usa, and he is caught with hundreds of smuggled cigarettes. And the police are like, what are you doing with all these cigarettes? Where are you going with these? And, you know, why are you smuggling? And like all the questions, right? And they find out that Siegfried is gay which is a crime at this mm-hmm. time. And he was taking the cigarettes to a quote-unquote homosexual and lesbian orgy is how it's put in the Stasi paperwork. So who knows? It could have just been a small party, but who knows? Right. Um, so these were smuggled cigarettes used for nefarious purposes by nefarious people kind of thing. It was right. like a very... Mm-hmm. So when a Stasi officer comes into the room, plain clothes... So there's no uniform. Pretty much when people see an official come in and they're in regular clothes and not a uniform, everyone gets scared because that's the Stasi. And the Stasi were a secret, like as, as I mentioned, so a secret like police. In a, in a way, yeah. They okay. are the intelligence for East Germany. And they are terrifying. Now, at the end of World War II, there were all these terrible stories that were coming out about the Stasi, about how ruthless and violent and horrible they were but they were trying to change their image now in in the 60s and they were now just like a super secret police but they had eyes and ears everywhere like hundreds of thousands of informants and they even had like microphones and cameras in people's houses just everyone's houses there are hundreds of tapes where you can hear everything going on in people's houses yeah Oh, yeah. No, everything. Um, yeah. I don't want anyone to hear what goes on in my house. Right. I mean, so there's all these tapes. And in fact, actually, the... They would think my IQ was like two. <laughs> <laughs> but like the podcast of Tunnel 29 from the BBC, it's actually done by the author of this book as well, too, that I read, Tunnel 29. So I was kind of doing both at the same time. Um she plays clips of some of these tapes and you hear like kids parties and people having conversations and you know like it's it's crazy it's so creepy so when people go out for like a doctor's appointment or go out to work or something the stasis they were wanting to keep an eye on you which they were keeping an eye on everybody would come in and bug your house and no one was the wiser in the podcast they tell a, a joke that was running at the time about the stasi and they said why would the Stasi make such good taxi drivers? Because when you get into the cab, they already know your name and where you live. And where you're going. <laughs> where you're going. <laughs> so. Um, They're not wrong. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, you had a question. Oh, are they Russian? 
So is East Germany run by the Soviets? This was something that I had to keep kind of trying to keep in mind, and I had to keep referencing for myself because that was a question that would always come up. Technically, they were Germans, but it, the sector was occupied by the Soviets. Same thing with the American sector. So they sector. worked for the Soviets. Yeah, same thing for the Americans, same thing for Britain, same thing for France and each of their sectors. Basically, when it comes right down to it, the Stasi are known at the, in history as like the biggest or most secret or more, most successful, I should say, secret police and intelligence agencies. I'll say they had their nose up everyone's butt crack. They really ran deep. They had they had informants east and west at all tiers of, you know, like you really couldn't trust anybody. All these mm. informants, like I said, there were hundreds of thousands of them. The population percentage, it was like the greatest of any other, inf- you know, intelligence agency or something yeah. like that in history. I was like, holy what, shit. What would you stand to gain from that, though? Like, what would be the Well, point? that's great that you bring that up because now we go back to Siegfried Usa. So we just talked about how scary he is seeing the Stasi officer mm-hmm. in the interrogation room because he knows what's we coming. know what's going on here. And he says, now you could go to prison because you are gay and you are smuggling cigarettes. So you've got a lot of crimes against you. But we can do something about that. Will you spy for us? And we can kind of wipe this clean. Mm. And that's how they get people. So they get I dirt see. on people. Yeah, it's and then they use it against them and blackmail them. It's clever. So they have this reputation that precedes them. So when anyone's caught and they're seeing this non-uniformed officer here, they're like, it's Stasi. That's why they had thousands, like tens of thousands of these informants. It was 102,000 people as part of the Stasi network to watch 17 million people. So the proportions are like wild mm-hmm. <laughs> with that. 102,000 for 17 million. There we go. So Siegfried is now in this position where it's prison or become an informant. And Stasi prisons are notoriously not nice at all. Exactly. Like are very, very bad. Yeah. And so he Siegfried signs a document saying that he volunteers to be a Stasi informant and he chooses the code name Fred. The Stasi keep an eye on him for a couple of weeks, gathering info on him. So they learn even more about him, down to what paper he reads, um, what cigarettes he smokes, <laughs> what books he likes, all those sort of things. And they're really impressed with him because as they're watching him, he they take notes on him. By the way, all these Stasi files that they have on all these informants are extensive, and that is a massive understatement. They know everything everything about people people have like feet and feet and feet and feet and feet long of files if you like laid them out like just one person one of the notes that they make is that Siegfried had even gone to the doctor to try and cure his homosexuality and they were really impressed with that they're like oh he's like doing things (laughs) he's being proactive Hmm. It's really sad. And they're giving him along the way. So they're giving all these little tests because he's showing, you know, quote unquote, showing promise. And they're so impressed with the point to the point where they're like, right, we're going to give you your first job. We want you to try and find escape helpers. So escape helpers are the people that were trying to, I mean, as their name suggests, but that was specifically what they were called. Anyone that was making plans to try and help people escape from east to west. You, Siegfried, a.k.a. Fred, we want you to start on that. Now, meanwhile, let's go back to Joachim, who had been taken into that CIA safe house. 
his first two weeks, he's just trying to settle in and figure out life in the West. It's just so much freedom. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Like Extremely you're, his, different for him. His life was scheduled back home, you know. Like if he um, – like for him as a – university student in engineering they'd say as an engineering student here are your classes these are the times you go there boom whereas now he's at this west berlin university they're like oh you can take all kinds of classes and you can find the class that works for you like you know go you can go at, at in the morning or you can go at midday like there's options for you and the bars are open late and you can there's not like all these curfews and stuff you can just live your life and it's a lot for him. So he's just trying to like figure that out. So a few weeks after starting up at university again, he's sitting in his dorm room and he gets a knock on the door. He opens the door and there are two Italian students standing there. And he's seen them around the campus. He doesn't really know them as friends, but he's like, I, I have seen their faces. And here they are at his dorm room late at night. So he's like, all right, come on, come on in. Their names are Mimo and Gigi which I just love. Hmm. And they had known that he had escaped from East Berlin. And they said, hey, we have a friend in East Berlin with his wife and baby. And it was it's so it's obviously too hard for them to escape. They can't just like hop the border and crawl through a river like with Joachim a crying did. baby. Right. You know, will you help us? We're going to build a tunnel. And Joachim, even though he's just a few weeks out from escaping, goes, all right. I will wow. help you because I want other people to be able to escape too. I don't know that I would have been able to do that. Yeah, I mean, this is... Because I'd be like, I'm too insane. afraid. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I'm not in his shoes in that situation. Maybe I would decide the same, but just think you just finally got your uh -huh. freedom back. Could you imagine what happens knock, if you're knock. caught again? Hey, do you want to go back in? But he says yes because he's an amazing human being. And, and brave one. So now, yeah. And so now let's go back again. We're kind of ping-ponging back over to Siegfried Usa codename Fred, now the Stasi informant. He's in West Berlin because he's able to go back and forth. He's trying to find people. He's in West Berlin and he's in a pub chatting with some students there because most of the time escape helpers were students because most people escaping were young people. Yeah. And so he's hanging out with these students. They're chatting music and politics and all the things that young people are going to talk about and get excited about. And then as the drinks and the conversations flowing, it gets into escape stories. And he's like, yeah, do, do you guys have any good escape stories? Do you know anyone who's had any big escapes? One of the students says, he's like, I know a group of guys who are planning to build a tunnel. And Siegfried's like, oh, that's amazing. How how brave, how wonderful. Can I meet them? And the, and the student's like, sure, I'll get you in touch with them. So Joachim tells the... Italian students, Mimo and Gigi. Yeah, sure, I will help you build your tunnel. I am an engineering student, yes, but I've never built a tunnel before. So there's a ton of questions that you start with, like wh how do you even begin? So they started with just a shit ton of maps. Because people in the West don't necessarily, I'm going to add a caveat to this in a second, but necessarily have to hide things from their West Berlin government, where it's like in the East, you didn't tell anybody anything. Mm. In the West, they're like, hey, we've got some friends that work for local public works, and they can get us some maps. Now, the risk being that you don't know who's a Stasi informant. Still, even on the West side, there are still, like I said earlier, so many informants over there. You still have to be a little careful, but 
they could go to the people that they knew in government and be like, hey, maps. Maps would be great. We want to know water tables and the, the plumbing and the sewage, where all these pipes are going, street names, building numbers. They, they want to get all of it so that way they can really plan this out. So they find a street that's going to work, and it's uh, called Benauerstrasse. And it's that one that I mentioned that has the Berlin Wall right down the middle. It's a very busy street. It's basically, the, the author, Elena Miriman, says, it's basically like if you're trying to tuddle into Times Square. It's okay. like just like a very busy touristy street. Everyone's like taking pictures of the wall. And there's lots of uh, border patrol walking around because it's the wall. The wall, right. <laughs> so there's like yeah. tons of stuff going on. And they find this old factory. And this is on the west side, by the way. They, they find this old factory that does um, cocktail straws. <laughs> And Mimo and Gigi go in there and go, we're two members of a jazz band and we're just looking for a place that we can go and practice in the evenings. And the owner of the factory is like, I know exactly what you're doing. And yes, you can build your tunnel. <laughs> I'm here for you. I'm brother. here for you. He turns out he also escaped from the, the East. Oh, God so bless he's that like, man. oh, fuck the jazz band story. He's like, you I know exactly what you're looking band. for. But if you happen to bring one, they're welcome. But they're welcome too. <laughs> But you can use the water, like do what you need to do to make your tunnel, which is wow. just amazing, right? Now, Mimo and Gigi, as Italian students, are technically foreigners. They're not Germans, right? Mm-hmm. So they have passports that they can travel to and from east and west. Really? Yeah, they have a... They have a foreigners could get through with no problem? They're Italian. They're not... What? Yeah. I didn't could. know. I, I guess to me, they wouldn't let foreigners in. Well, people, people could go... And this is what the story is going to be based on, too. People could go into the East if they had a West German passport. You just had to line up at the border, but no one could go out if you didn't have that West German passport. Right. They weren't letting their own people out, but people could come from the outside could come in. So when the wall goes up, if people had family in the East. Yeah. But Joachim and... Anybody that escapes, they don't have. They cannot. Right. They don't have those passports that it would allow them to, because they're escaped. So they don't have the paperwork to, to be get able back to safely. go back. Right. So, but if you were West German or a foreigner, you could go over. Really? Yeah. You just had to be able to prove that you were that Prove that you can get back out. out again. That's yeah. insane. I mm-hmm. didn't realize they'd let people in. I guess to me, I am surprised they would let people in because they were trying to keep it hush-hush what they were doing. It, I think things probably got harder as time went on. The border probably yeah. tightened up quite a bit. But at this at this time, like at least during the time of the, the story, there is the ability to, to go, well, to go back and forth to a certain that degree. That blew my mind. I did not mm-hmm. realize that. Okay. That is a piece of information I never had. Mimo and Gigi with their Italian passports or their foreign passports they could get to the other side they go to the east and they already had their break-in spot it was the basement of an apartment building where they went to a party the night of the party they sneak down to the basement and um get one of the spare keys mold the key in plasticine so they have like the outline of the the key teeth and then they take it to a key maker the next day and wow get a key made for the bottom basement of this apartment building that they they were in in the east so they've got their target buildings on each side of the wall they have the factory in west berlin 
they have the basement of the apartment in East Berlin on Banauerstrasse, the very busy street. Let's meet the rest of our cast here. Okay, so we have Wolf Schulte. Love it. Very charismatic. He had a VW van. Cool dude. Next person, we have Hassel Herschel, who had just spent four and a half years in prison, and his sister and her brand new baby wanted to come over. Third person is Uli Pfeiffer, and he escaped through the sewer system. Yeah, so these are our, our main four main dudes in the diggers. And then we also have Mimo and Gigi, the Italians, part of the crew. Six guys, because we can't forget about Joachim. Now, for the tools. <laughs> Hassel was like, uh, hey, guys, I actually saw a construction site, and they're not really doing too much on it. So let's go grab some stuff from there. So they get a wheelbarrow and like some hammers and some stuff, and they just hop the fence. And, and there they go. Now building the tunnel. They knew from media what didn't work for a tunnel, like what would, what collapsed easily, what failed. And again, being engineering students, they had some idea to a, to a certain degree, but otherwise they were completely winging it. The first evening, they spent the night in the factory breaking through the concrete and then the hard clay and all the dirt and then just trying to get through the layers. In the first few days, they worked to get deep enough under the water lines, which was four and a half meters deep or um, just under just under 15 feet. They realized it was quite a task because the clay was pretty hard to get through. So not only those initial layers, but there's also more clay underneath, of course. I don't think that I'm claustrophobic until sometimes I have to like <laughs> imagine myself in tunnels or like caves and tight spots. And I go, mm, no, I don't think I can do this. So the space was one meter by one meter. So basically we're talking about three feet one way, three feet the other way. And to dig... The person digging had to lie on their back and then just dig down at their feet, which is really hard to do as well. Yeah, imagine that. So think of like where you're sitting there, like think of like a luge where you're like laying back and there you go. And you're, you've got your feet against the wall that you're trying to dig through. And then you're like digging down at your feet and having to scoop the dirt up. It's a very uncomfortable position is what yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah, but they couldn't be on their front and digging because you don't have the elbow sort of space to be able space, to do it. You'd be hitting the side Yeah, of the so they found that they have to like lay on their back and dig at their feet. <laughs> it just makes me nervous right there. And they started to get this great little system going. They have, then um, they find the best way to dig. Then they would get these small piles of dirt and they would bring them up to the cart. And there's a telephone from World War II era telephone that they had built up in the <laughs> in the tunnel. So they would do a little ring, ring, and they would do the little ring, ring on the bell. And it would ring up top in the, the basement, and then they knew to bring the cart of dirt up. So they've got that system going. There are the four men working eight-hour shifts, wash, rinse, repeat, basically. Mm-hmm. They're doing this for days, obviously. Uh, weeks, I should say, really. And their hands are just shredded, blistered, raw. Their bodies just ache and hurt. They're dirty all the time. So they have to get 400 meters to get to this point on the other side into this apartment building, which for us is 1,312.34 feet, just over 1,300 feet that they have to make this tunnel for in order to get to this basement. They're thinking of the measurements and the time it's taking them. And they're like, this is going to take us a year to get this tunnel built. This is insane. We need more money. We need more people. We we need some help here. And so 
you know how I was saying like they were there are all these pictures taken at the wall like people you know of all these escapes and whatnot so keep in mind all these news stations are there by the wall trying to document what they can on the on the western side Mm -hmm. and we are now going to bring in NBC News the American news station say the American NBC NBC News yes in order to get money and more money they're like well what if we tell our story to the media what if we get western media involved in this and we got our news producer uh reuven frank so reuven frank wants to do this huge berlin wall story like a documentary basically and instead of just being like oh here's maybe what's going on at the wall they wanted to get a story that played out and then do like a again yeah like a documentary on it and it would be some super fresh revolutionary news and journalism because no one had done that to that point. It's like reality TV, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So he gives this idea to the rest of the board at NBC, and they're like, yes, that's awesome. If you can get somebody to do this, we will back it. So now, back to Germany. We've got uh, Wolf Schulte, who is very charming and charismatic. Did I do good with that? Thank you. you and did. he goes, I was really <laughs> impressed. And so he goes, because they're looking for media or uh, journalists who are going to tell their story, German media is like, no, it's a bit too hot. We, we're not going to touch that. So he's like, well, let's go to the Americans then because they're a little bit more removed from this. They're crazy. They'll go They're crazy. Anything. So let's go to the Americans. So then they find um, NBC correspondent in Germany. Name, his name is uh, Piers Anderton. And he's just been told by his boss, keep an eye out for these escape stories. And he has an escape story that falls in his lap. And he is thrilled. He's like, the boss is going to love this. So the the deal that uh, Volschroda was trying to make was that NBC would pay for their film rights. And then they would use the money to build the tunnel. And Wolf was like, no, you don't understand. You really can only tell your higher ups. You can't tell anybody else we're keeping this very secret only a few of the guys know about this not even all the diggers on the team know about it i need you to sign a document that says if you tell anyone else i'm going to give fifty thousand dollars to volshota <laughs> so he makes a sign of- so pierce talks to reuven frank in new york city about the tunnel and he's on board he's like let's make this happen they send the cameraman in and um the diggers pick up the cameramen and blindfold them and then kind of make it all squirrely for them on their way to where the factory is because they don't want them to know exactly where things are. No, they shouldn't. I agree. And because the other diggers don't know about this, only the four guys know. So we have uh, Joachim, Volschroda, Hassel, and Uli are the four guys that know about it. So not even the two Italian students know about it either. The cameraman can only come when those four guys are working. So now they have more equipment and the group of diggers grows to 12. Now they are far enough in the tunnel that they need to pump in fresh air. So engineering student Joachim gets these uh, stovepipes that are a meter long and they tack them up in the top to pump in fresh air. He also gets electrical lights to go down there as well too so they can see and they can breathe. Great, they can keep on digging. But now they're under the street they can hear everything going on above them. It's crazy. They hear the trams, they hear cars, and sometimes they can even hear like, you know, louder conversations or if there's someone like right above. And they're like, wow, this is 
this is nuts. Now this is for real. We're out into the street now. And as it gets past that point, it starts getting where the wall is. And there's that dust strip, as I was talking about. So it's like that that bit of space right where all these guards were patrolling and everything. And now they're on the lookout for tunnels. So they even have these special microphones that are pointed down to the ground to pick up noise. So if there is somebody directly underneath them, they'll be able to hear hear tunnelers underneath with these microphones. They were really dedicated to this whole people must not leave thing. Right. They really were. And thankfully, the diggers knew this. These, These boys knew this because they're like, okay, when it's quiet up above, we need to be quiet here. So they would turn off the fans and everything. So they, you know, it made it harder with the breathing, but they would like have to be very silent as they tunneled under this point. That is a very panicky thing. Not so much the like enclosed space, not super terrible. It's the lack of air. That freaks me out. Yeah. And that was something that gets mentioned as well, too, in, in the book and in the podcast, is that now, when they heard the street, it was like, okay, we're under the street. Mm-hmm. And it, there is, even though you're underground and you're in this tightly enclosed space, there's some sort of, like, camaraderie and, like, social in a way. Because they're like, oh, I can still hear people. I can hear the world going yeah, on above me. Yeah, because it doesn't sound so far away. Yes. When they were under the death strip, they said that they would like how much it felt like a tomb or like a coffin mm-hmm. because and also the danger the sense of danger as well too but uh the silence and then the lack of air it was very i don't know that just makes me that would be the hardest bit. part that lack of air and that that spot yeah so one day they're under the death strip and water starts to seep into their tunnel <gasps> Very soon it starts to get flooded. Like, water is coming in. Mm -mm. And they're like, okay, there must be a burst pipe nearby because how else would so much water be coming in? But they can't use their tunnel anymore because it's starting to get flooded. They don't want to get trapped down there, obviously. And they're trying to pump the water out as best they can. But they're like, this is a problem that's too big for us. We might have some engineers in our group, but we don't have any plumbers. And we have no one that can just go and find this pipe and fix it. So now they're coming up to another problem that they're facing here. So another group goes, hey, what if we go to the West Berlin government and see if they can fix this pipe for us? Let's, tell, let's just tell them what we're doing and they can fix, fix the problem for us. Some people were like, okay, yeah, maybe a cool idea if we didn't have so many informants that this could go wrong, you know? And it gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, we won't be able to do this if we don't go to the government. No one else is going to be able to, to fix this problem for us. Our tunnel's flooded. If if it gets flooded, it gets washed away. The plan is scrapped. We can't do it. Shit. So they go to the local government, and they go and they talk to the, the water guys, water and plumbing. and Waterworks. The waterworks, yeah. Thank you. And they tell him everything. They're like, this is what's going on. We're building a tunnel, and this needs to get fixed. And the guy's like, oh, I'll help you. I'll take care of it. You know, got you. So they go back and they're just having a hope. <laughs> they just didn't get fucked over. Mm-hmm. A couple days go by and nothing's happening. And they're like, oh no, oh no, what's going on? Our tunnel's going to get washed away. Like they're not going to do anything about it. Did they tell somebody or are they just ignoring us? And, you know, like all the questions start to pop up. And soon they see two plumbers after a few days that, that show up on Bernauerstrasse. They're like, we don't even know why we're here. We're just told that we need to start looking at pipes, that there's a burst pipe somewhere. And we need to find it and fix it. So here's how cool West Berlin government was. That guy who's like, oh, yeah, no, it's cool. I'll take care of it. Sends out 
a couple of different teams of plumbers to check all along the street to, you know, find this burst pipe that's somewhere in the street. Mm-hmm. And because we're getting reports is, of water. To, yeah. yeah. So they, because they know, because again, this wall, like people can see what's going on, on the other side of the wall if you're up high enough. Mm-hmm. And if there's a couple of guys that are working on one specific area and going in and out of this like one factory, they, the they'll government's like, they're going to see it. They're going to get suspicious. They're going to want to know what's going know on. exactly what's up. Yeah. So let's send out teams everywhere and no one really knows. It was a great idea. So they really hooked it up. There's some real Gs on the West German side. Yeah. West Berlin side, excuse mm-hmm. me. Yeah. All Germans. West <laughs> Berlin side. West Berlin side. So they're now about 15 meters away from their target. But now their tunnel is unusable. Even though the flooding has stopped, it's still filled. Like they have to let it dry out and they have to like pump so it. The pipe got like fixed. That. Pipe got fixed. Oh, yep. shit, yeah. Mm-hmm. Soon they didn't have any more leaking. So... And, but they're still flooded. But they're still flooded, yeah. It's not like the plumbers came and, like, flushed everything out. They they have to get it out themselves and then let it dry out. But as of right now, it's completely unusable. They hear about another group of students who have a tunnel, but no diggers. I guess when the, the diggers got sick or something like that, and so everyone kind of stopped, and now these guys have a tunnel, they're like, well, we don't have anyone that can, like, help us dig. So they take a huge risk by joining forces with them. The tunnel isn't as great as their original one. Because remember, Joachim had all these support beams engineered mm-hmm. in there. The, the stovepipe with the air and the electricity and the little telephone line and everything. Was that the first picture you put on social media? Yes, I think so. Yeah. That's his original tunnel. That's the original tunnel, yeah. Okay. Because it looked like professional as hell. Too legit to quit. It looked, yeah, it was very nice. And so when they get to this other one, the tunnel is even more narrow as well too and they're like there's a huge risk that this can just you guys are gonna cave in dig up or yeah it can just collapse yeah the the collapse risk was very high so they spend a bunch of time fixing it and they also have to make sure that they even know where this tunnel is going too turns out it's going the wrong way and was going to come up under a different cottage so they're like oh good let's fix that too so now everything gets remedied thank god and they don't have much further to dig before it's all set so it's really nice so now we're joined up with this second group. But guess who's in that second group of diggers oh, that Joachim and his team have just joined? Um, Fred. Yeah, Siegfried Usa, a.k.a. Fred. Siegfried. He's part of the second group of tunnelers because remember when he asked at the pub, hey, those guys that are digging this tunnel, awesome, tell me about them. Meet, let me meet them. I want to help dig. It's the second group. So, Shit. <laughs> yeah, so we have a Stasi informant that is now kind of part of the group. Now with this tunnel just meters away from its its destination, this new tunnel, I'm going to put pause on there. We're going to add another couple characters to our story here. Wolf Dieter and his sweetheart, Renata. They met as high schoolers in a pen pal program. So there's like an east-west pen pal program when they were, when they were mm-hmm. younger. And after a few years, they moved to opposite sides of Berlin. So Renata is still on the east, and Wolf Dieter lives in the west. They're meeting, and they like each other. They're just starting to fall in love. Wall goes up. Boom. So now because uh, Wolf Dieter has his West Germany passport, he can go over to see Renata, but it takes him like three hours just to get through the border. Like I said, you can't just like hop over, but you you could go, and you could come back if you had the proof. He goes and 
you know, he goes to, to see her and it gets to the point where Renata's fed up. She wants out of there. She's I, she's sick of all of it. Wolfdieter hears about this tunnel and he's like, hey, I asked these guys if they can get you on the escape list. And they said, yes, hang in there, sweetheart. I got you. And because he has that passport, he becomes the messenger for the group. So Whoa. they're like, yeah, we'll let Renata in, but we need your your help because you have the passport. You so you got to work us. for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Which is fair. And he becomes the messenger. And so he's he's going back and forth in a reasonable amount, you know, mm-hmm. to not cause uh, suspicion. And he's relaying all the details to this, this group of people. And it's a big group, too, by the way. And... They get a date set. It's going to be August 7th. From 4 to 7 p.m., there, the escape was going to happen through the, the basement of that apartment building. There were going to be about 100 people to escape. So about 100 people were on this list or, you know, were expected. Quite a bit. And they're even going to have um, escape helpers on the streets to give signals like, you know, combing your hair means this and tying your shoe means danger. Get out of there. You know, so... You know there's signals now, too. This is the plan. So there's a final meeting with the diggers. And there's one more message that has to be sent over to the to the east. Who's going to do it? Oh, I'll do it, says Siegfried Usa. Siegfried takes it. You the man, Siegfried. Thanks for taking our message. Bye. He goes straight to his handler. Fuck. Fuck. So he's he goes straight to his Stasi handler, tells him everything. The whole plan. What I just told you, there it is. And the Stasi are on this because so, they're a well-oiled machine. They are ready for this sort of stuff. And they move in. They set those very well-organized traps. ultimate trap, mouse trap. An ultimate mouse trap. The Stasi would have been great at that fucking game. Flip the man into the pan. Of the deck. You know, that whole thing. It took you three hours to set it up. And oh you're like, God. and then like if you bumped it or sneezed or anything like that, <laughs> shit it, fell it, it would fall so apart. Fast. And you're like, ah, shit. I remember the cage would always fall down. It would never just stay up. It oh, would just like randomly My cage fall always down. got caught. Oh. Mine never fell down. You go tick, 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 Yeah. I would be pissed. I was like, this is the shittiest thing ever. You had to like help it down, keep hitting it. Like, Oh my God. And I was like, my mouse is gone. This game is bullshit. <laughs> uh, mousetrap. Anyway, here we go. The day, August 7th. Joachim, Uli, and Hassel take their last supplies with them into the, the tunnel. They've got like a saw, a hammer, a uh, walkie-talkie. <laughs> it's the basics that they need to bust through. And then they also bring some guns to defend themselves because if they get caught by the Stasi, the Stasi were known to shoot people that were popping up through tunnels. Take them down, man. Yeah, so they're like, we're going to defend ourselves. Here we go. This is where things kind of hit the fan. The boys, the three boys, Joachim, Uli, Hassel. They're in the tunnel. They're about to bust through. It's 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, we're going to like take the little ca- the camera scene, pretend you're like watching a movie. We're going to take the camera. It pans up to the street. Directly above them, the first truck of people come. There are going to be three. Sorry, I forgot to mention that great detail. There are going to be three trucks as well, too. Part of it is because there are going to be three um, like trailer trucks that have larger groups of people in them that are going to drop people off. And then there's going to be other smaller groups of people that were walking as well, too. So the Stasi are watching for these trucks. Okay, here we go. Boom. Back into the action. We see the first truck pull up. 
Mimo is on board on this truck. He sees the Stasi plainclothes officers on the street that are all kind of milling around and keeping an eye out for everybody. And he tells the driver, go, 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 don't stop. They get away. Unfortunately, it's not like the land of cell phones at this time, and they can't tell anybody. So there's no way to tell the others. And soon families, and it's mostly, again, young families. So it's people with like little baby carriages and stuff like that, or like little toddlers and like younger kids that are strolling up and nabbed by the Stasi and thrown into vans. It's a mess. The next truckload of people come up. Now the second truck's gotten hit. Now everyone's getting kind of like dragged away. 43 people are captured by the Stasi. The cottage is now surrounded. Joachim, Uli, and Hassel are just working on trying to saw out that final breakthrough point. They've punched four corners into the floor, but the carpet's fucking them up. So they're like getting caught on the carpet. So it's taken them a while. Thank God. I'm just going to say that because they're trying to bust through the floor as the Stasi are now surrounding this, this cottage. So it's a different exit point. Yes, they're not in that impart- apartment okay. building. Yep. I don't know that you mentioned that. Oh, okay, sorry. So yeah, well, they're in this this new tunnel now, okay. and they've busted in under this this little cottage. So it's not an apartment building any longer. Right. Okay. It's not an apartment building. So they're just trying to get through the carpeting that because they didn't have to deal with that. Of course, in the in the apartment building, it was a basement. Now they've got like a living room that they're busting into, basically. Suddenly, they start hearing commotion both from their walkie-talkie and like back down their tunnel, as well as just above their heads, like on the other side of this floor. There's a woman that's screaming, go, go, get out of here, go, go. And they are hearing their walkie-talkie going, get out of there, get out of there, go, go, go. Because keep in mind, people in the West up high in, in like those buildings, they can look down, they can see, because guess what? The new tunnel's location that they're going to pop up in this cottage is only like two streets away from the wall or something like that. It was like right there. There you can watch everything going wrong because the NBC crews are sitting there filming everything, right? Oh my God. So the guys in the West are panicked. They're radioing down to uh, the three at the end of the tunnel who are about to bust in. It's probably a good going, thing. Going, get back, get back, get back. There's a woman on the other side of the wall who's going, go, go, run, get out of here. But these three guys, they don't know who's saying that for one thing. And they're worried about the people on the other side. They're like, they might need help. Like, we need to get them out of there kind of thing. They didn't want to let anybody down. They're like, these people on the other side, they need us. We, we have to get through. And so they just start trying to work harder and faster. So the Stasi had rounded up all these people. They know that they're going into this this cottage. They've got this cottage surrounded. They're going in. They've pulled out the uh, couple that own it. And they're like questioning them and saying, you know, what's going on? What's going on here? And the couple are trying to basically like stall the Stasi as much as they can. And the woman who was screaming, go, go, get out of here, run, was the owner. Meanwhile, they're starting to bust through faster because they're like, we got to get to the people. The Stasi have come in. They see that they're about to bust through the floor. And they're like, you know what? Instead of getting in the tunnel where they can get away, let's let them come all the way out, not only into this room, but let's wait till they come into the living room further. To So they're like hiding in the next room, just waiting for the three guys to make their final bust through the carpet. They get out. And they're watched from the other room. They don't realize this. But Joachim goes towards the window and kind of does like a little peaky, like sneaky look. He sees Stasi outside, kind of sneaking around. He goes, 
oh shit, we're surrounded. This is bad. Meanwhile, they they hear the message of their buddies back going, come on, come on, come on. One of the guys runs out and is in the West honking his horn on, on the car in the street, trying to like also warn them that way so they can they can hear that, right? You know, they have their guns and they're like, but we, you know, we have our guns. We, we might be able to get a couple people out of here because they don't realize that everyone's been taken yet. There might be some people that come, you know, the one guy goes, I think it was uh hustle. He goes, my pistol's jammed. Give me the machine gun. And now in these Stasi reports, which again are very, very detailed, this, there's uh, Stasi reports that say they can, they not only can see all three of them standing in the next room, they can see that they have pistols, but then they now hear this big machine gun getting loaded up. And they're like, oh shit, we're going to need backup. Call backup. We're going to wait. Because they were like, oh, let's get him. Let's get him now. And then they hear, chink, chink, you know, they hear like this big gun They actually loaded. had a machine gun? They actually have a machine Holy gun. Fuck. They pull it up through the like tunnel. Like a Gatling style? I, I, they just oh, say machine gun. Oh, my yeah. God. And that could probably shoot through the walls. Well, out. that's exactly what the Stasi think. They're like, you know what? We're, we're going to actually give this a minute. Let's get some backup because if we go and get them now, we're going to get mowed down. Yeah. So let's wait. Thankfully, the three boys that just popped out of the tunnel, even though they have this machine gun, they finally are like getting the message of like, no, you really actually have to get out right now. And they're like, okay, go, go, go. So they get down. Boom. Thankfully, they get through the tunnel by the time the Stasi get their backup and uh-huh. come. And surround the place. Yeah. Meanwhile... Part of that first escape was Renata. Remember uh, Wolf Dieter and Renata? They, she was going to go and, and um, be part of this escape. He had gone over to East Berlin to like just kind of be like, hey, I'm here with you. I'm going to escort you for the first half, and then I got a split, and I will meet you on the other side of the border. I love you. I'll see you very soon kind of thing. She goes, she goes on with her best friend, Britta. They're going to cross together. We'll see you on the other side. Wolf Dieter gets to the border and things just feel a little different than most times when he crossed. He just, he just gets the feeling that the guards were standing there like waiting for him. They all just seem to be like really staring intently at him when he mm-hmm. gets to the border. They pull him out and uh, pull him aside and they're like, we need to look at your passport and we need to verify this. And it's like, there's some bad vibes. There's a different mm-hmm. energy here. Oh, he can sense the energy for sure. Mm-hmm. He gets taken because they're like, we need to verify this. You need to come with us to the station. And he's there for a long time. He has no watch. He has no concept of time. And he's questioned by the police. And he's like, I got to make up a story. He basically just says, hey, I was just a student and I had a free day off. I just wanted to come into the city. And because he doesn't, they technically don't have anything to tie him to the tunnel. You know, it's not like he has anything on him that's incriminating. So he's like, they need to believe me. What's going on? Then a Stasi officer comes in. Again, it's the plain clothes that just strikes fear in Wolf Dieter's heart. And the guy goes, you're lying. I know you're lying. I don't buy your story at all. He, this is kind of a, like a weird part in the story. Um, I'm not exactly sure what. The verbiage? Th- well, it's just kind of like a weird point in the story where like, he's like, you're, you're lying. You're a liar. Get out of here. He grabs him, throws him out, I guess like in the hallway and makes him face the wall. And Wolf Dieter is standing there for I he guess probably quite didn't a long know if time. He was going to get shot or not? Right. I think that was again. It's I, all everything in these Stasi prisons and jails and like the, the way the Stasi ran pretty much everything was just always to just throw you off mm-hmm. and make you feel weird and always question what's happening next. It was all like real psychological, mm-hmm. mental torture. Oh, yeah, most powerful kind. He's so he's just facing the wall and he's standing there for a very long time and then he hears someone walking up behind him 
and he can tell it's a woman. And it just kind of makes him think, oh, you know, I'm so glad that Renata and Britta got away. And, you know, they're on the other side now. They're safe. And he turns and it's Britta, Renata's best friend. Mm -hmm. And he knows that if Britta's here, Renata's captured, captured at least, or killed. Like maybe she was shot as she ran away. Lots of questions, but he knows that she's been caught, like that she didn't escape. Because if Britta's there, then... He just assumes they're both together. So did they know that they were connected? I think that's what must have happened is that there was talking that happened and they knew that Wolf Dieter was not just a student, that he was he was an escape helper. Wolf Dieter gets transferred then to a Stasi prison called uh, Han Schonenhausen prison. And it's this big, super secret Stasi prison that's set way far away. It's actually really hard to find. And there are mostly ex-Nazis or Nazi officials from World War II that are being kept there and prisoners of the the Stasi, like any sort of like criminals that they deemed important enough to be kept there. I don't think I'd want to be in an ex-Nazi prison. No, it's it's terrible. And that's also part of the thing too with these prisons is they're just, they're meant to just suck the life out of you and just crush your soul because you're in solitary. You don't get to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you get like a half hour a day and it's, and it's, weird and it, it sometimes it's like in the middle of the night you know it's like again everything's to throw you off there's no like real sort of schedule in the sense of no like, routine which our minds cling to yeah you and it's labor as well too most of them this one in particular is more of interrogations but that's the thing too is everyone was mixed up it wasn't like you know you how know we would have right yeah you it's not like you were like i'm I'm going to be kept away from the really scary guys because I'm a, this kind of criminal or that kind of criminal or whatever. Like They're like, oh, no, we're going to mix you all together because it's it's scarier that way. So here Wolf Dieter is in Han Schoenhausen prison. He's strip searched and then thrown into a cell and then almost immediately pulled back out again to go to interrogation in the wee morning hours. This is all kind of like in the middle of the night. Stasi interrogators were masters. At the end of World War II, and like in the 50s at least, they got a really bad rap for how violent and terrifying they were. But they didn't like that. They wanted to like kind of clean, you know, quote unquote, clean up their image. And so instead of having physical torture, they just did all this mental and psychological torture. So they actually had degrees in it. They like wrote curriculum on how to interrogate somebody. So they're very, very good, and Wolfdieter's not going to stand a chance against this interrogator. So as time goes on, he's so tired, he ends up just, just to kind of shorten things up a little bit, he ends up telling them everything. He's just so worn out by the end of it. So when they give him back the confession to sign it, he realizes, yep, they they got all the details in there, but then there's these weird extra lies in there. They wanted him to agree that it's all part of this Western government coup to overthrow the the East. And he's like, I know I told you all the details. We're not that we're not that high up. <laughs> we're not we're not doing like this whole like, you know, overthrow the government thing. We're just, you know, we're just digging this tunnel. Why are you gonna make up these lies? I'm not gonna sign that. And then the guy's like, no, you will sign that. He's like, I will not sign that. And so he they spend some more time on him, and he ends up signing it. The Stasi want him to sign that because they're working on setting up this propaganda show trial for mm-hmm. him um, as this terrorist against the East government and the East way of life. 
200 people come to the trial, media and, and all that, and he ends up getting sentenced to seven years at Brandenburg Labor Prison, or Brandenburg Prison, but it was it was hard labor, sorry. As he's there, he starts to put the pieces together about who could have betrayed them. And he's realizing as he went through, he's kind of like replaying this interrogation, because all you can do is just sit by yourself and think your thoughts. He starts replaying back the interrogation, and he's like, Everything that they asked me was like the same question multiple times. So he like really had ingrained like what they were looking for and all these questions and who they were asking about. And he tells them everything. He's like, they were interested in every single person I told them about. Except. Except Siegfried Usa. Yeah. And they did not care about Siegfried Usa. They did not write his name down. And all Pulling of a sudden he's like. questioning. Yeah. And he's like, that's interesting. I think that's the guy who's ratted us out. But I can't tell anybody back over in the West because our I can't tell get anybody. Yeah. yeah, I can't get to anyone. So he's just frustrated with this. And then one day he gets yanked out by a Stasi officer that takes him to this trial, not as a, a criminal, but to, to watch it. And he they walks in and it's Renata's trial. I knew you were going to say And that. she gets sentenced to four years in prison. And... The Stasi officer just brought him there just again to just try to break him further and crush his soul. And he sees his beloved get sentenced to four years in prison. They're able to just kind of grab hands for a few seconds and then they get pulled away. It's really sad. But that was the one time he got to see her. and But he was happy that she wasn't dead, dead at least, like his, he didn't know, you know. And so when he walks in and he sees that Relief she's there, and he's also like, sadness. yes, right, yeah. exactly. It's really really awful. Back in the West, the the boys, as I'm going to call them, our, our main group of, of lads, they see Wolf Leader's show trial. And the rumors of, at the time were, you know, hard labor at these Stasi prisons were, it was like a fate worse than death, some of them would say, because I guess it was like really... Was it really bad? Really bad, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I figured... I know, sometimes I at... think we would go, oh, hard labor, oh, just, you know, you'd have well, to work really hard. I didn't know really if it hard, was but... worse than when he was at before. Because he was mixed in with Nazis before, so I was like, Eesh. yeah, yeah, but yeah, now I didn't now know it's the hard caliber labor. of people he was kept with. Now, mm. oh, I'm not sure. I'm okay. sure it's. I mean, I think it's the same. It's like you're mixed with murderers and well, Asian shit. rapists and okay. everything. Yeah, so I mean, he's still yeah. in. Eesh. Yeah, I, that's kind of like how it was across the board. I think at all these prisons because it was designed to freak you out. But the trial actually steals their resolve to continue. So. Even though they're kind of lying low and they're really mistrustful of everybody, they're like, "We're gonna, we still have to make this happen. We got, we owe it to the people back back east to try and get these, get more people out." Because again, some they only got the Stasi. I shouldn't say only, but the Stasi got forty three people, not all one hundred or mm-hmm. even more. You know, so some people were able to get away. Another thing that happens, which is only mentioned in the book, but there was an eighteen year old bricklayer. His name was Peter Fetcher. While working next to the wall with his friend, they decided to try to escape. They're running for the wall, and the Border Patrol starts shooting at them. The friend makes it over, but right at the wall, Peter gets shot in the hip. Now, what happens, this is kind of a bummer part of the story, what happens is for an hour, Peter lays there dying. And it's right at the wall, and there's east and west soldiers standing there watching this boy die and the people are at the wall taking pictures i mean there's a picture of it people are saying you know why don't you do something why don't you do something the american troops didn't do anything 
the Vopo were definitely not going to do anything because they were the ones that shot him in the first place. Could the Americans place. do anything? What? Could the Americans do anything? Well, I think that was or the whole thing shot. is they kind of felt like their hands were tied. But apparently word got to Kennedy saying, hey, there's a – like, should we do something about this? And no word came back to say yay or nay. So, yeah. But at the time, would you be awakening a war with Russia? Well, that's Think exactly what's going on. about the gravity of that situation. Like, yeah. I'm just saying so people understand exactly why maybe those decisions were made. Like, if you've ever seen that movie, The Imitation Game, they made a decision to let some... Lives be lost. S- yes. Mm-hmm. For the greater good so that mm-hmm. they did not lose that Enigma code. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm assuming is the, the case here. It makes people very mad because it's this young man he's a teenager really and he you know gets shot at the wall as he's trying to escape for freedom no one does anything for one but then two the east german government was using it as this like well that's what you get that's Mm -hmm. what you get if you're a lawbreaker you know what this is what happens they made an example out of him and Mm -hmm. people were furious and his parents only found out that he was dead when the um stasi came in and searched the house and tipped it upside down looking for information and other things and they're like oh yeah your son's dead by the way so people were pissed and he became kind of like this symbol the anger around the wall too Mm -hmm. like it kind of like further fueled the anger at the wall and so the boys had this picture this news picture paper of peter wow at the wall um and they would look at it and be like nope this is why we're doing it this is why we're doing this so they're back now in their first original tunnel the nice one. Joachim gets back. Everything's dried out. It's a little muddy, but they're like, you know what? We can work with this. Yep, you know, we can make that happen. It's sludgy, but we can we can get through. And it's kind of like old times in terms of having the nice stuff back again. But one, there's a long way to dig, and two, they still don't know who that mole is. After the big raid, Siegfried is highly uh, commended by his handler and the Stasi. Are like, hey. Well done. They like recommend him for this big award and stuff like that. And they're very impressed with him. Siegfried's back in still, but because everyone's not really trusting each other so much, only that really tight core four are like, yeah, except for uh, Mimo and Gigi. But anyone outside of that, it was. So he was not involved in. Yeah, didn't really get involved. One night, Joachim is digging in the tunnel and he hears this electrical humming back in the tunnel near the beginning of it by the cellar. And it's at this moment as he's going in and inspecting things that the cellar door opens and all of a sudden there's this big old dude standing there and he goes, hello, I'm Klaus. I'm a butcher. I also escaped from East Germany or East Berlin. And uh, I was trying to escape with my pregnant wife and small child. And I ran and I got away and I thought they were with me, but they weren't. They got nabbed by the Stasi, and I would like to help get them back out. Joachim's standing there going, cool, 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 let me call my friends. Don't you dare move, because he's thinking, oh, you're a, you're a spy. You're probably the bull, like, or at least them, one really? of them. Like, That's... how did you just, like, show up here at our tunnel? And the three other boys come, and they're all on him. They're like, how did you know where our tunnel is? Who are you? Who are you really? And, yeah. and all this stuff. And... Perfectly logical questions. Perfectly logical questions. They're trying to verify everything that he's saying. And and so one of them's going back and forth from Klaus's apartment to try and veri- verify these details. And things are mostly matching up. But then sometimes they're like, oh, that was just a little bit different for us to feel comfortable with. 
And so they're like, you know what? Let's just take him to the West Berlin Intelligence. <laughs> and our buddies over there can, <laughs> can interrogate him and figure out what's really going on. So he gets interrogated by the West Berlin Intelligence. And they call back the our digger boys. And they say, well, good news, bad news. Good news is... <laughs> We can't find any proof that, that he is a Stasi informant, but bad news is we can't prove it otherwise. So just, you know, watch out and be careful if you're going like, to let him on the team. It's yeah. so funny to me. They're like, I mean, officially, like, it's not okay, but, you know, <laughs> we'll fix that pipe for See you. See what you get. Uh-huh. They just, they're yeah. so enabling. It's oh, yeah. They're like, we, fantastic. We they're like you. the cool parents that you're like, right. You can We'd much rather you drink at our house so exactly. we can keep an eye on you. Yeah. That's the West Berlin government. <laughs> you're like, it's fine, but we don't know about it. Yeah. Wink. So then the boys are like, oh, all right. Great, thanks. They go back to their tunnel the next day to dig. And Klaus is there. He is persistent. He's like, I really want to like prove myself to you. I'll take double shifts back to back, which at this point, again, they're completely shredded in their hands and their backs, their bodies hurt, they're tired. They're like, if you want to take double shifts, fine, yeah. And they feel like between being interrogated twice and all that he went through with, with them, if he probably would have been scared off, you know? So the fact that he's not, they're like, okay, you, you passed the vibe check, he's as the kids the say. He's probably the real deal, yeah. Yeah. So he takes those double shifts, and he does not complain. He works hard. The guy, again, is, is huge. He's, like, built like a tank. So they're like, oh, yeah, man, <laughs> get those big arms moving. Let's go. <laughs> but they don't tell Klaus any of the details of the plan. So, again, they've, they're keeping that one really tight. And then they dig for four months. So now we're in September, and they are super close to the original location, to that apartment building that they're going to go into. So now we're back to plan A, right? Ready for some more water. <laughs> A pipe gets hit and the tunnel starts to fill with water again. So they have to make a choice since it's so close to their original target. Like, do we stop now where we are or we just start digging straight up into the basement of the building above us? Bad news. This building is only two streets away from the wall and it is actively patrolled by border guards that like walk along that street so based on their maps they're going to break up into the basement of this apartment building number seven but they don't they don't know any it wasn't like the other apartment building the original one where they were gonna they had the the key that they made and everything like that so they this is a separate building similar problems that they're they're coming to come up against but it's not (laughs) it's not prepared for necessarily so they're like okay do we scrap the tunnel or do we take the risk and go up into this building? And after a few days, they decide that they're going to do it. They're like, nope, we've come this far. We're going we're gonna to get, get this going. They set a breakthrough date for September 14th. And now they just need a messenger to go to East Berlin and let the escapees know that there's been a location change. We're just going to go to meet at this building now and on this date and everything like that. Boom. Here are the final details. No one's volunteering because they know what happened the first time around. And meanwhile, our buddy uh, Siegfried Usa, Fred, has kind of been sniffing around. He's still, he's still at the, this is, there's still a group still, but he's kind of on the, on the edges of the group. And he's kind of asking questions here and there like, oh, you know, when, when's this, when's the tunnel going to happen? Where's it going to? And like, sometimes he'll get some answers and, but otherwise no one was really telling him anything. So he knows that something's going on, 
his handlers know something's going on, but no one knows where or what's happening. Yeah, and when. So they're staying pretty tight-lipped about this. And they're like, we need to get someone that we can trust, but no one's going to volunteer here. Mimo decides to recruit his reluctant girlfriend, Ellen. And he tells her about everything that's going on and what happened the first time and what they're trying to do the second time. He's like, this is what's going on and we need somebody. Like I said, she was reluctant as anyone would be, but she realized that she's the only one who can do it and is trusted to do it. And all these people are counting on her. And she's like, I, I can't let them down. The plan was that there were going to be three pubs for people to wait at until a specific signal was given. And it was going to be different at each of the pubs. With the escape now on, Reuven Frank decides to go to West Berlin so he can be there for the you know, grand finale, if you will, of it all. And he wants to watch it for himself. And then he decides to also send a cameraman with Ellen to record the first half of her travels into East Germany. Then, so then after the, after that, they all take their place up in this tall apartment, and that's where some of the that's where the NBC people are staying. But then also, like some of the tunnelers are going to use that as well too, because it's so high up they can look down and see, and they can give signals. And then day of the escape, they go through the plan. The tunnelers up in this fifth story apartment are like, "We're going to hang a white sheet out when the boys break through," and. That's going to be your time to go and like signal all the bars. Okay, Ellen, you're going to be, on, she's going to be on the other side of the wall and she's going to see this white sheet and be like, okay, off I go to give the signal. And they give her East and West German money just in case anything should go down. She's got currency for both sides. At midday, she starts her, her trip over to East Berlin. She's on the train. The cameraman's watching her on the train. She's just kind of looking out the window. Then he gets off and she continues on into the border. Back in the West, Everyone now finds out about the NBC crew because they're there and the freaking producer and executive is is there as well. Kind of a dead giveaway. They're pissed. Some of them are even threatening to walk out because they're like, you've just jeopardized this. Now things could be really unsafe and I can't believe you've been doing this behind our backs the whole time. And uh, everyone's mad. But thankfully, everyone chills the fuck out and they're like, okay, fine. We'll finish this because if they if people walked out like they wouldn't be able to finish it would have completely fallen through they needed everyone there. Joachim and Hassel volunteered to be the ones in the east trying to get people through. They go again with guns, but this time they also bring skeleton keys because they know on the other side there's going to be some doors locked that they need to be able to get th- or get people through. So they bring the keys with them. They bring the guns, and then they're bringing some of their last tools so they can bust in on the other side. When they get over there, they get up through the floor and they get to this door that leads to the cellar. They use their skeleton keys. They find one, thankfully, that unlocks it. So now people are able to get, at least from the inside of the apartment building, down into the cellar. Now that they're in this building and they've got this door unlocked, Joachim does have to make sure that it is indeed number seven on the street because that's what they've told everybody to go to. And so thankfully, he's smart. He brings a, along a workman shirt. So he puts it on, goes up out of the basement and like pretends to be like a workman. And meanwhile, there's border patrol and people on the streets and he's got to just be as cool as possible. But thankfully, it's all right. It's good. The NBC people and the tunnelers up there put out the white sheet. Ellen's like, boom, there's my signal. That's my, that's my cue. I'm heading out. Ellen goes into the first pub and she is kind of casually looking around as she walks in and she sees this young 
family just kind of staring intently at her and she's like okay maybe that's somebody I don't know you know because she doesn't know who she's looking for she's just going in to be like okay I gotta give these signals hopefully the people see them and leave her signal at the first place was to buy matches so she asks for matches in a loud enough voice buys the matches kind of holding them in her hand she's putting them in her purse you know so she's trying to like Make it obvious enough that it's a signal, but not be like weird about it, of course. But before she goes to the second pub, she's got a little bit of time. She's only supposed to go in there at like certain times. So she's like, I got to kill a little bit of time, but I need to stay moving. So I'm not, you know, suspiciously standing around. As she's walking, she realizes she's walking past the street that the escape is going to be taking place on. And she can see number seven. And she's like, that's going to be the house. I just want to see the tunnel. And she starts walking to the house. In interviews later, she's she goes, I still cannot tell you why I did that. She's like, I have no idea. It's like her body just started doing it. And she had no idea why. She knew it was like a bad idea. Like when she thought about it, she's like, of course you don't go and do that. It's like a huge mistake. It could blow everything. NBC across the wall is seeing her doing this and they're like oh my god oh my god no 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 don't don't do it they're calling the the boys back in the tunnel and they're like this is what's going on mimo's freaking out because he's like why on earth is she doing that she's gonna get caught oh my gosh (laughs) and then they watch her walk into the house and they're like oh my god she's in she's in what is she doing and she's going into this apartment building i think that's like when she's seeing the cellar door to go downstairs she's like what on earth are you doing? And thankfully she gets out of there pretty quickly. And then even (laughs) with these border guards passing by, they thankfully don't notice her. She walks down the street and it's fine. So she gets out. Thankfully she's, she's back at it again. She's going to go to pub number two. At pub number two, she's supposed to order a water. She does so. She drinks it. She kind of looks around. She sees some people watching her. Boom. Leaves. Goes to the third pub. Now the third pub, we're getting at the end of the work day. And so this pub is kind of like a worker's pub. It's full of people after work, smoking and drinking. It's loud. It's packed. And her cue, or her, sorry, her signal in there was to order a coffee. She goes in. She's hoping people can kind of see her enter the room, even though it's busy. And she orders a coffee. And the bartender's like, what? You want a coffee? We don't have any coffee. And she's like, well, what do you... And so now she decides to get kind of theatrical about it. And she's like, what do you mean you don't have any coffee? Why don't you serve coffee? And so she's trying to say it at least so people can hear. She's like, well, if you don't have coffee, <laughs> right. I'll take a cognac, you know, because it's got the same letter. He's like, whatever, lady. Gives her the cognac. She, like, slams it. <laughs> and then... As she turns from the bar, she's looking as be like, oh, God, I hope people understood what just happened there. But he does, she does see people looking at her. So she's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> All right. Boom. Leaves. Now she goes out and her mission now at this point, her job is pretty much done, but she's got to get back over the border. They don't want what hap- to happen to Ellen, what happened to Wolf Dieter when mm-hmm. he got stuck at the border because people were getting caught at the cot or at the yeah the cottage so her job is to now get a taxi as quickly as possible back to the train station get the next train out go she gets a taxi pretty easily too and she's on the way to the train station but she's realizing in her purse she has all this east german and west german money which i guess and she had enough of each that it would have been suspicious that she had all these west german notes well she just kind of panics and is like 
I'm just going to give this all to the taxi driver. So she basically just takes all the cash in her bag, stuffs it in the guy's hand and goes, thank you, and just runs off. Truck. As she does that, though, she thinks, fuck, what if he's Stasi? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because all it takes is him to go, hey, my passenger was acting weird and Stasi would be at the, you know. she gave you know. me both types of money. Right, Lots exactly. Of Lots of it. I mean, thankfully... He wasn't. He just had a good night then. <laughs> but um, but she's worried now, and so she's nervous in line, and she gets questioned, and they're like, you know, what is your passport? What is this? What are you doing here? You know, so they want to search her bag. Nothing questionable about her bag. She got rid of the money, so she's like, okay. Well, we want you to come with us. They take her in a room, and they strip search her. Uh, a policewoman searches her. They find... Nothing on her, thankfully. Right. There's nothing to tie her to it. And they're like, okay, you're clear. You're free to go. Meanwhile, she's just been stripped. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, carry on. Resume. But resume your life. But thankfully, she runs out of there. And there's a train waiting. And it, she gets on it. The door's closed. Kind of thing. It's like perfect. Can you imagine her she feeling gets as those clothes? And she just sank down like, holy yeah. shit. Well, it's, in, it says that, um, you know, she was sitting there and she's shaking. You know, of course, the adrenaline, but she's also like, I'm still in the East. I'm not home free yet. And at a certain point when you cross, there's an announcement, kind of like how it was in, in the, in the Canadian caper. Yeah. yeah, the announcement over the air that's just or on the loudspeaker that says you're now entering into the West sector of, you know, Berlin or whatever, mm-hmm. Western. And that was when she finally could take a breath. But, you know, it's scary for a minute. She's safe. She gets home. She's good. Now back with Joachim and Hassel in the tunnel. They're they're through. Doors are open. Now they're just waiting. And they're waiting quite a while, and they start to get kind of nervous. They're like, uh-oh, were the people caught again? Like, what's going on? When it's kind of like getting to that critical moment of worry, the first people that arrive there are the ones from that first bar, that, that young couple. Now, the young couple with the – they have like a little 15-month-old baby. Now, as a mom of a 15-month-old baby, I'm just like, oh, my God. Don't it's amazing that they do this. But they're they're there, and they were the ones, actually, who were the friends of Mimo and Gigi, who were the original. Remember how they said they have a friend and his yes. wife and baby? They the were the ones. The original inception of yes. this whole idea. Yeah, so uh, Evelyn is her name. She, she goes by Evie. And Annetta is the daughter, the little, little girl's name. They get in there, and... They're into the tunnel. Dad goes first. I forgot what his name was. I didn't write it down. I should have. <laughs> Dad, but he doesn't actually matter. <laughs> he, he gets in, and then um, Evie goes. And then one of the tunnelers takes Annetta, the little baby, and is carrying her. And the tunnelers are so, so amazing in so many ways. Not only their bravery, but it's a tight little tunnel. They know that people are going to probably panic at some point. And so they're in the tunnel going, you're safe. You're fine. You know, we've got you. You're doing great. You know, like we're talking to them the whole time to like keep them moving forward because it is a 400 meter tunnel, which is 1,312, well, a little over 1,312 feet for us. It takes them about 12 minutes to crawl through this tunnel. To get to the okay, other side. You have to you can't run doubled over, you have to crawl. No, yeah, I mean it is like tight. So Shit. it's it's a tight enough tunnel that you don't have to move much, like kind of shimmy their shoulders to feel the so wall you're on either side. Like hands and knees. So yeah. you're on hands and yeah. So I you're can crawling move hands quick and knees. Like that. 
Yeah, but remember, this is pretty full of mud as well, too. Yeah, no, totally. I'm yeah. just saying, like, I'd be booking it. I'd be shuffling like a little possum trying to cross the road. Yes. You know how they do? Yeah. <laughs> right after the first family get through, there's supposed to be a 15-minute break, but apparently the next group is, like, already there. And so they're like, oh, okay, let's go. Let's do it. The next group is um, Hassel's sister, actually, and her little baby. So he's like, oh, my gosh, my sister. Awesome. So glad you're here. Let's go. Let's yeah. get you through. And so they hug, but they're, like, right on it. They're getting them through the next next one. Right. Now, because they've kind of mixed groups a few times, some of these are people that they know. Some of them are the ones they're familiar with have heard their name or know that they're family members or friends of somebody else that they know. Some of them are complete strangers. And it, that doesn't really help the edginess of knowing that a mole still exists. And it even happens that at one point, a man comes in, he's got a leather coat on, and his hands are in his pockets and his head's down, and they think he's Stasi, And they're like, guns on him, hands up, hands up, get your hands out of your pockets, yeah. you know. Thankfully, the gun doesn't go off, for one, and two, they see his family standing behind him. And they're like, oh my God, come in. So like, everyone's mm-hmm. freaked out, like, man, that was close. That would have been, in so many ways, awful. So it was essentially what they're crawling is a length of over four football fields from goal line to goal line. Okay. Just yeah. to give you an I had to do, I needed a visualization, mm-hmm. so I'm very visual. Uh, and I was just thinking, and I was like, that is a long fucking way to yeah. crawl. 12 minutes to, to get through that. It's a long time. Well, at least for the first group, it took 12 minutes for Evie to get through yeah. the other side. Because on the other side, they're filming this. But they're just waiting for people to get through. They just, yeah, they're just waiting for people to like pop up. And Evie, she gets up and she's through. She faints at the top, but they kind of pull her out and they they carry her out. I don't know. I'm assuming it's probably more of like the adrenaline of all of it. Yeah. Then little Annetta gets brought up a few minutes later and then she's like cuddling her baby. And the whole time, Annetta didn't make a sound. Can you imagine that? Like taking. No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, no, it doesn't say that any of the babies were, like, drugged or anything like that. But just they all stayed quiet. Like they everyone were at a bar, though, Laurel, so they gave her whiskey. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just uh, kidding, but, but yeah. no, all the babies stayed quiet. And that was something that was, like, noted with uh, Annetta, like, the first mm-hmm. people through. And she just stayed so quiet. Unfortunately, though, when they broke through the floor, the, the basement of this new building, they hit a little bit of water. There's a little dribble of water that was coming through, but they didn't think much of it at the time. No big deal. They're like, they're fine. They just, you know, they're going to get people through. Now, after the first few people have gone through, they're realizing there's actually a little bit more water coming in to the point where it's actually starting to puddle up a little bit. So the floor's already muddy. Now we're starting to get like little tiny puddles of where this water's kind of trickling in. Also, since it's later at night, it's around eight o'clock at night at this point, the people that are coming home into the apartment building are locking the door behind them. So the landlords locked the door. Now other people are locking the door. So Joachim keeps going out in his workman's shirt and picking the lock. They don't have a skeleton key for this one. They're actually picking the, the front door lock and having to do this every time someone comes home and locks the main building door. So he keeps going out. Again, there's people patrolling the streets. He's trying to like time it out. People are trying to get through the tunnel. Water's coming back into it, and it is, it's getting a little hairy. The last people to make it through is Klaus, our butcher friend, 
his wife, Inga, and their two children. Ah. He was starting to get worried that his, his missus hadn't come through yet. And he was yeah, like back in the back up. in the base freaking out a little bit. But here she is. She showed up. And one of them is this little tiny five-month-old baby. Because remember, she got she had they had the small child, but she was pregnant mm-hmm. when she was captured. So she's never so had a child before. Yeah, so she was in prison. She had this baby in the prison and she's got this little five-month-old baby now. And as they come up out of the tunnel, Klaus is so happy to see her. She, but she's like tired. She doesn't realize it's her husband that's like pulling her out of the tunnel. And she like gets up at the top of the ladder, and then the baby comes up because all the babies got carried behind the moms. And the baby comes up, and he's like just holding this baby, going, "Oh my god!" He gets to meet his kid for the first time, and that's when she realizes. That's when Inga realizes it's her husband. So they have like this whole reunion. It's really sweet. They're the last people out of the tunnel. Joachim is the last one there. Nobody else was there, thankfully. He's like, okay, those are the last ones through. Good timing because I'm about knee-high in water now as I'm standing here at the top of the tunnel. We need to be done. Yeah. And he was really happy because 29 people got through that night, Mm -hmm. which is why it was called Tunnel 29. Uh, And it makes him think of his father back when his family was trying to escape you know, earlier in our story, and it makes him hope that his dad's proud of him, and it's just, like, really emotional. But it has a happy ending, and he's like, I feel good about this, and he gets back in the West. Now our little epilogue here, so <laughs> thanks for sticking with that story so long. It's a, it's a doozy. No, here, it's, here's it's how everything kind of ends a- and wraps up here for us. They have a little party a few days later, and it's kind of bittersweet because not all of their friends and family were able to get through the tunnel, and... They're trying to figure out how to start new lives and, and everything. Stuck over there and yes, yeah. And the Western media outlets get hold of the story. And it's the largest escape up to that point. And that's when they call it Tunnel 29. And East Germany finds out about it. Of course, they're pissed. Say, wait till they find out. <laughs> they're pissed. Basically, what had happened is they did end up finding the other end of the tunnel mm-hmm. in the east, at least. But it's flooded, right? You know, like, and it's a mess. And oh, they, there's, okay. well, I mean, they had enough water that had come into it that they couldn't get anybody they else can't through use it. it. Yeah. Thank so God. the Stasi tried to like make like a parallel tunnel. And they're going to try and figure out who's on the other end of this and, and catch them. But their tunnel digging skills aren't as great. And they end up kind of having yeah, like a couple of suck. failed, <laughs> they had a couple of failed tunnels. And so they weren't ever able to like kind of dig back and kind of reverse engineer it, you know? Good. But they were mad about it. Reuven Frank takes the film footage back to New York City, and it's revolutionary. They make this documentary, and they want to show it the, the following month. It's going to air in October, but that's when the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. And the U.S. government blocked the tape from coming out because they're like, we don't want to have any more issues. Yeah, yeah, because the Cuban Missile Crisis was literally like nuclear war was about to happen. Like, mm-hmm. my finger is over the big red button kind of thing. So they're like, we don't want any any more shit to we hit the fan during the this. Cuban Missile Crisis. So we're going to need to block this story. So they blocked it only for a, a few more months. So in December at fi- of that year, in 1962, it finally aired. 18 million people watched it, including President Kennedy. And so all the all the boys were like really proud of kind of how it turned out and the yeah. fact that the pres- the American president was watching it too. And apparently like made him tear up and feel great pride and congratulations boys kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Wolf Dieter and Renata were released after two and four years respectively. So yeah. Wolf Dieter served two of his seven years, yeah. but uh, Renata served all four of hers. She was the East Sider, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were married after that. 
and did stay together. Yeah, and when the wall came down in 89, they were able to then read their Stasi files. And they found out that uh, Wolfdieter was right about Siegfried Ulsa. And yeah, he's like, oh, I knew it was that guy. Uh, and speaking of Siegfried Ulsa, he worked for the Stasi for about 10 more years. And oh in God. total, yeah, in total got 89 people caught and arrested. And then he vanished, and no one could really find him after that. The rumor was that he passed away in Thailand um, of cancer, but no one knows for sure. It's kind of dark. Huh? Yeah. Wolf Schrotter funded uh, another tunnel. Hassel smuggled people out with a Cadillac. He ended up smuggling like hundreds, hundreds of people out with this Cadillac that he bought. The Italians, Mimo and Gigi, sold the film footage all around Europe. Ellen wrote a book about it. Ellen was Mimo's girlfriend, and then she married Mimo. Mimo has since passed, but Ellen is still living. And um, In fact, I've heard her in the, the interviews for this as well, too. And our ride-or-die boy, Klaus, <laughs> he used the tunnel, that tunnel, Tunnel 29, for as long as possible, still trying to get people out. He was even using scuba equipment to try and keep getting people through. And um, yeah, but he ended up rescuing some more people through that tunnel as wow. well. Way to go, Klaus. Uh, it got to the point, though, that his wife was like, right, this is getting too dangerous. Like, just <laughs> we're through. <laughs> You've got some more people through. Just hang up the uh, the tunnels. The Cape Crusader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bless his heart. Uli went to Namibia. He just kind of like, was like traveling around. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joachim ended up finding these little shoes, these little tiny shoes in the tunnel when he went back after things had kind of settled down with it. He's like, I'm going to go see if there's some things I can remember stuff by because, again, it was muddy. A lot of things was kind of left behind, a lot of shoes, like the mud, you know, everything was getting stuck in there. And he finds, like, you know, some some tools and whatnot, but then he finds this little pair of shoes. He keeps them all the rest of his life. He keeps them hung, hanging up on his bedroom wall because they belong to his stepdaughter, Aneta. So what had happened was Evie and Aneta and her husband, remember when they were the first ones to cross through the tunnel, they split up not too long after they got over into the West for whatever reason. And after that time, you know, when uh, Joachim heard that Evie had, was, was getting divorced and had to move, he's like, well, do you need help moving? It's just you and your daughter. A lot of the tunnelers kind of stayed sort of in touch with the people that they rescued you know yeah. so it that wasn't like a, an unusual thing and they ended up developing a really nice little friendship realized that they had yeah minutes. they realized that they had a lot in, cl- in common and it did they they ended up falling in love and then after about 10 years after meeting they they got married and they are still together today so he wow. keeps he kept the little shoes you know not realizing who they were and then evie's like those are Another shoes. Yeah, so, yeah, it's really lovely. He received a Federal Cross of Merit for his work on the tunnel, which is like one of Germany's highest civilian awards. And the Berlin Wall came down on November 9th of 1989 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. We just went on a ride there, everybody. That was something. I'm just glad yours was more uplifting than mine, that's all. Yeah. I, I, like, I think mine's important so, to talk about, but, you know. Yes, yours is very it's important. It's just a little darker. Very, very important, though. It's very interesting I mean, that we ended up in the same country. Same place. <laughs> Passing Almost the baton the in, in the, yeah. the timeline, we too. We right up to each other. Yeah. 
That's crazy. But hey, that's that's how it happens. That's how it goes. That's how it goes when you're hightailing through history. <laughs> <laughs> On universe juice. <laughs> On universe juice. Yeah, speaking of universe juice, yeah, we're pretty uh, stoned. And Katie is stoned as well, too, because uh, sorry about that. <laughs> stoned and tired now. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was going to say it's, that was a long story. Everyone's kind of coming down off of it now. but uh, No, that was a... Wow, episode 10 in the books right there. That's movie material, though. That was a big one. I liked the story, and I was working on it, and then when I found out that it actually had happened this week in history, I was like, oh, I've got to have it ready for (laughs) (laughs) for that day. But it was really great. Um, Really great story. And an uplifting and inspiring tale of a daring escape. Since it was a long one, we'll probably let everybody go and (laughs) finish uh, relaxing. Go to bed. I was just saying, I'm going to get to bed. (laughs) Yeah. But thanks for joining us, everybody. We're so happy that you're here. (laughs) We are. Thanks for hanging out with us for for episode 10. We look forward to seeing you next week for episode 11. Katie, let's hightail it out of here. And everybody, get money, get high, give love, and... Never say die. Never say die. Goonies never say die. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing on whatever platform you get your pods. It really does help us so much and also helps others find us and join our weekly history party. As for the socials, you can find us on Instagram at Hightailing History and on Facebook at Hightailing Through History or with the username at Hightailing History. You can contact us at hightailinghistorypod at gmail.com. Have a great week, folks.